0: and since I bought my 2016 F 150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F 150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Walt Disney. A man so legendary, his name probably makes you think of a giant media empire and massive iconic theme parks before you think of an actual human being. Walt Disney, the man, is a classic American success story, if there ever was one. But he wasn't born destined to become a successful animator. Far from it. He didn't show up with a silver spoon in his mouth. His mom was a homemaker, and his dad worked a variety of jobs that always kept the Disneys off the street, but certainly never got the family ahead. Walt got his first job at 11 to help his family pay the bills. At the age of just 15, he went overseas to help out his country's World War I efforts, working as a medic in France. And he only worked as a medic because the army wouldn't let him enlist as a soldier due to his young age. Later in life, he'd say that he wished boys were able to enlist at an even younger age than 15 in order to make men more self-reliant. Dude may have been in the business of G-rated children's cartoons, but he sure as shit wasn't soft. The story of the founder of the House of Mouse is fascinating and inspiring. He overcame numerous obstacles to build his empire, from having his first cartoon essentially stolen by his distributor to dealing with a massive strike in the 40s that almost bankrupted him. Walt was no stranger to adversity. He was a brilliant innovator, someone with true entrepreneurial spirit and a man with a no ounce of quit in him. He literally worked himself into a nervous breakdown at one point, And then after a doctor mandated vacation, he got his cartoon and ass right back to work. There was so much he wanted to do. There were movies to make, theme parks to build, a utopian community to design. Dude set his sights high. Nothing was ever good enough. Was his utopian vision ever realized? Just how big has his empire become? how did Walt go from a small-time Midwestern animator to one of the most famous media tycoons of all time is there a secret hidden Illuminati Illuminati meeting place inside Disneyland we're gonna find out all this and more today on time suck this is Michael McDonald and you're listening to time suck you're listening to time suck <laughs> Every Monday, meet Sax. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Wear wear a sassy little Cinderella cosplay costume today, if you don't mind. Uh, Praise Bojangles, and I'm surprised Triple M hasn't scored a Disney movie or two yet. Uh, Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Kellman, Suck Nasty, the Suck Master, Snow White's 8th Dwarf, and you are listening to Time Suck. Recording right here in the Suck Dungeon in CDA, August has been uh, pretty beautiful here in northern Idaho. Got the script keeper, uh, Reverend Doctor Joe Paisley in the studio, oh, along with Art Warlock, Logan Keith, and Kay Keith, the uh, Bad Magic Baroness. So everybody's getting everybody's got to have nicknames. I was late. I was late to the party with those last couple. Uh, important announcement before we jump into content: tickets to the virtual gathering 2020 are on sale right now. Hail Nimrod and fuck you, COVID. We're still going to get in some community this year. Uh, the gathering is going to take place on November 21st, Saturday before Thanksgiving calling it Sucks Given 2020. Uh, we can't plan a face-to-face gathering this year for obvious reasons. Uh, we're still going to have fun. There's going to be a 90-minute dinner show. Uh, it's going to be a drinking game. It's going to be a, a Q&A where you get to eat your turkey, whatever you're uh, eating, as I share a, a Thanksgiving-exclusive mini-suck with some little drinking game uh, moments built into it that will never show up uh, on the Time Suck or the Secret Suck feeds. So it's just going to be for this event. You know, you drink alcohol or not, whatever your preference is. We can, we can share a little, little community. A little fellowship together uh, through the power of some Zoom software. With a $50 general admission ticket, you get a box of goodies containing a plastic dinner set, shot glass, game sheet, and more mailed to you ahead of the show. With a $75 VIP ticket, you get the same box of goodies, uh, the Sucksgiving show, you know, the, 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 slash game, plus an intimate group Zoom chat with me uh, before dinner on the 21st where we can chat. You can ask questions, get a little tour of the studio, et cetera. Something a little more, uh, again, intimate. Uh, once the 200 VIP boxes are gone, they're gone. General tickets on sale now to the end of the month. And based on how many tickets we sell and where the tickets come from time zone wise, then we'll set the VIP tour times and the dinner show time to be the most accommodating times for the most people. Excited to still uh, do a get together. If it all goes well, it's going to give us that much more confidence to make the 2021 in-person gathering bigger and better if viruses allow that to happen. Uh, so excited for that. Uh, And thanks again to the Space Lizards for making it possible for Bad Magic Productions to donate $6,600 to Uh, YWCAidaho.org. Marking the donation, General Fund Idaho County, to help fight way too much domestic violence uh, in a county with uh, very few people living in it. Uh, The the county of my birth. So thank you for that. Uh, All right. Now let's talk about the M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E fellow mustache, rockin' cartoon making. Smoking, drinking, empire-building, son of a bitch. Uh, Known as Walt Meredith Nathaniel Disney III. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Walt's middle names uh, weren't Meredith Nathaniel. Uh, He had one uh, nickname. It was uh, Elias. And he wasn't the third Walt. He was one of the most influential people of the 20th century. And I'm excited to share what we've learned about him with you today. In this episode of Time Suck... We're going to learn all about the creator of the House of Mouse as he grew from a humble animator to one of the most famous innovators of all time. We'll learn about his personal life, including the many myths and conspiracies that surround him. Is his head really frozen? Is it it hidden somewhere in Disneyland? Uh, Was he really an FBI informant, an anti-commie Red Scare agent? Before we dive into today's timeline, the best way to move through Walt's life, uh, I just want to note that when it comes to certain moments in his childhood, there were a lot more discrepancies between sources than normal. So if our dates don't line up with the dates you may have found, that's why. Uh, We did our best to decipher between various accounts of who did what and when. Uh, That said, we do feel good about being real close to being exactly right regarding the timeline dates, if just not being 100% accurate on all of them. Uh, One last thing, just because this subject is Disney, don't think this episode is going to be G-rated. This suck is very adult, just like all the others, you've been warned. Uh, Now let's hop right into today's Time Suck Timeline and kick Mickey right in his seemingly non-existent dick. Trap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Walter Elias, not Meredith Disney, was born in the Hermosa neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois, over on the northwest side of the city. His birthplace home, 2156 North Trip Avenue A, still stands. He was born in the uh, neighborhood where the Schwinn Bicycle Company was founded just six years prior. How, how very wholesome. Cartoons and bicycles. Oh, man. Yeah, throwing some baseball and apple pie. Uh, Hermosa, also the neighborhood where the butt plug and double dong dildo were invented. Oh, my heck! That's not true. Uh, would love it if the inventor of the butt plug was born in the house next to Walt Disney, though. How great would that coincidence be? And if both homes ended up being registered as national, like, historical places, uh, complete with, like, plaques, you know, along the sidewalk... Just picture some kid in a Donald Duck T-shirt. Mommy, what's the other plaque say? Don't worry about it, Billy. Why are there a bunch of plastic toys laying around in the yard? Those aren't toys, Billy. Well, they are. They are to- toy. They are toys, but not for. Just not for you. Don't touch them. Just do not touch them. I, I told you to be adult. Hey, Lucifina! And now be gone. I have to refocus. Uh, Walt was born to parents Elias Disney, uh, who was an Irish Canadian man, and Flora Call Disney, who was German American. Walt was the youngest of four boys: Herbert, Arthur, Disney. Raymond Arnold Disney, Roy Oliver Disney. Oh, Roy, you're going to be rolling over in your grave about what goes on later in this episode. And later on December 6, 1903, Elias and Flora would have their fifth and final child, a girl, Cinderella Elsa Ariel Disney, JK. <laughs> uh, her name was Ruth Flora Disney. I would love it if her name was Cinderella Elsa Ariel. Uh, Elias, Walt's father, was born on February 6, 1859 in the village of Bluevale, Ontario, Canada. He was a son of Irish immigrants, Keppel Elias Disney and Mary Richardson. Both of Elias's uh, parents had immigrated from Ireland as children with uh, their parents. And if the name Disney doesn't sound very Irish to you, that's because it's not originally Irish. It's derived from the Normandy French name Uh the Disneys. So that's kind of cool. I didn't realize it was the Anglicized version of it. Uh The Disneys, among others, descended from Normans who settled in Ireland around the 11th century. And while I don't personally know any Disneys, There are apparently over 6,500 Disneys in the world with over 5,000 of them in the U.S. Uh, Back in 1840, there were 23 different Disney families living in Maryland alone. And most are either not related to Walt or extremely distant relatives. Does that that seem weird to you? Because it seems weird to me. The name Disney has become so synonymous with a brand. I have a hard time thinking about it being the name of an actual person. I have a hard time thinking about some Mr. or Mrs. Disney out there, especially one that has nothing to to do with Walt or his empire. It Just means some random meat sack with the surname of Disney feels about as normal to me as meeting someone with the last name of Amazon or Starbucks or Taco Bell. All right, Dr. Taco Bell, I'm ready. Let's do this brain surgery. Uh, Elias Disney moved to California with his father in 1878 in hopes of finding gold, but they didn't find gold. Uh, If they found enough of it, maybe Walt would have been a miner, not an artist. Another weird thought. Uh, No Disney. Uh, Keppel was convinced by an agent of the Union Pacific Railroad to buy 200 acres of land near Ellis, Kansas, a little 2,000-person town, about halfway between Kansas City and Denver. In Ellis, Keppel lived as an orange farmer for a few years before his crops failed and the farm went bankrupt. Elias uh, worked on his father's new farm until 1884 when he decided to seek his fortune elsewhere. He was hired to work in a railroad machine shop. in Ellis, notably one of his coworkers at that shop, was Walter Chrysler, future founder of the Chrysler Corporation. Uh, the founder of Chrysler and the father of Walt Disney Working in the same little Kansas town machine shop uh, Elias then joined a railroad crew Bringing the Union Pacific line out through Colorado After his railroad contract was over He became a professional fiddle player in Denver Huh. Fiddle player Did not see that coming I'm sick of working on the railroad all the live long day I'm sick of just passing my time away It's time I chase my dream And my dream, I need to say it aloud Is the fiddle! Mmm. That's living. That's that's good as life gets. Uh, Elias didn't make a, a lot of money in Denver because, well, because uh, he's playing the fucking fiddle. I don't think anyone has ever associated fiddle playing with financial stability. Oh, wow, Dad, look at that mansion. I wonder what whoever lives there did to be able to pay for it. Well, if I had to guess, Charlie, I'd say that house was bought with some fiddle scratch. Uh, after his fiddle life didn't lead to steak and lobster and a bank account full of cash, uh, Elias had to return to his father's farm again outside of Ellis. Uh, soon, he grew tired of farming and headed south, where he worked for a short time as a as a mailman in Kissimmee, Florida. Ironically, Kissimmee is about twelve miles from where his son Walt would later build Walt Disney World. Uh, after working as a mailman, Elias attempted, like his father, to make a success. Uh, you know, make a career as an orange farmer and was uh, unsuccessful. I picture him staring at row after row of mangy, not producing shit orange trees, playing some sad ass song on the fiddle. Yeah, the oranges, they're just uh, not as citrusy and full as I thought they'd be. Ha! Ah, thank God for this here fiddle helping me get through the tired, frustrated moments of my life. Wispy ass of not producing shit, fucking orange trees, ruining my whole goddamn life. But I got this song, and that's that's better than nothing, I guess. Uh, I find it pretty ironic that Walt Disney, uh, become one of the most successful entrepreneurs of all time, was the son of a man who consistently failed at self-employment. Elias had a deep and lasting effect on his sons. He always worked. He always worked hard. From an early age, they learned to pick themselves up by the bootstraps, and they learned that one failure didn't mean the end as long as you just keep trying. Hail Nimrod. I like that lesson. Uh, He also might have given Walt uh, the inspiration for the Disney theme parks. Uh, Elias was a construction worker for the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, which historian Eric Larson interprets as a source of inspiration for the later Disney kingdoms. Uh, Hearing about the World's Fair from Elias, young Walt imagined miles upon miles of shops, exhibitions, and entertainment a dream he would eventually realize. Elias also, ironically, hated popular entertainment. He felt that going to the movie theater specifically was a, quote, complete waste of time. Funny that his son would make his fortune off of those who strongly disagreed with his father's sentiment regarding cinema. Uh, To be fair to his dad, though, uh, back in the early 20th century, uh, movies were shit. And yet another ironic twist, Elias was an ardent socialist and a supporter of Eugene Debs, one of the founders of the Industrial Workers of the World and a five-time candidate for president of the United States with the Socialist Party. Easy Bojangles. I know. I, I know. I know. Good boy. No need to growl. We all know you're not a big fan of, you know, uh, anything other than dog-eat-dog capitalism, pun kind of intended. Uh, Funny that the son of a socialist would go on to become one of the most successful capitalists of all time. Not as much seems to be known about Walt's mother, Flora. Flora Call Disney was born in Steuben, Ohio, the daughter of Henrietta Gross and Charles Call. She had three sisters and a brother of German and English descent, grew up next door to a home that Elias' parents lived in before they took off for Kansas. So Walt's dad literally married the girl next door. Flora married Elias on January 1st, 1888 in Kismet, Lake County, Florida. And they had five children. Herbert, as I said before, Disney, uh, born in 1888. Raymond, born in 1890. Roy, 1893. Walter, 1901. And finally, Ruth, 1903. Soon after their marriage, Disney's moved to Chicago. There, Elias befriended Walter Parr, a preacher for whom the Disney's fourth son, Walter, was named. Uh, By all accounts, Flora was a devoted and loving wife who raised her children according to uh, strict Christian principles. Elias was a strict and rigid disciplinarian, a man who never drank or smoked, and really, he was kind of a stick in the mud after, uh, you know, after he hung up that fiddle. All, all that, all that old-timey happiness went away. Oh, I used to have fun, and I used to dig in Denver. Now I'm with my kids in Chicago, and I wish my life was over, and I can't make my businesses run. Oh, I lost my will to live after the orange uh, grew failed. You get it. Uh, Flora was a fun and loving mom who played games and sang songs with children. 1906, the Disney family moved to Marceline, Missouri. In 1906, Marceline was popping. It was climbing towards its all-time population high of almost 4,000 people in 1910. About 2,000 people live in there today in a little town about a two-hour drive northeast of Kansas City. On March 5, 1906, Elias bought a 40-acre farm just outside of town. And Marceline was where Walt would spend most of his childhood. Marceline had sprung up along with many towns when the Santa Fe Railroad linked Kansas City and Chicago in the 1880s. By midsummer 1888, several businesses were flourishing. Churches were built. Plans were underway for the first term of school that fall. Mining of the area's substantial deposits of coal had already begun to fuel the coal-burning locomotives of the Santa Fe. It was in Marceline that Walt attended his first school, saw his first motion picture, caught his first fish, and it was at the Marceline grade school where Walt Disney was first exposed to the entertainment business. He had the title role in a class production of Peter Pan. In 1953, Peter Pan would be the 20th feature film that Disney would produce. Uh, Walt's memories of Marceline had a profound effect on how he'd portray classic American childhoods in small towns and movies and shows for many years to come. Main Street USA in Disneyland is actually based on Kansas Avenue, the main drag of Marceline, Missouri. Walt also devoted uh, or developed his lifelong love for trains growing up in Marceline. Part of the reason his theme parks would be successful early on was because tourists loved the trains that moved through and around them. Family life in Marceline was comfortable, if not extravagant, for the Disneys. Flora always made sure the children had good meals, sewed them warm clothes in the colder months, and taught them about the animals on the farm. Walt developed a love of animals in Marceline, especially their funny expressions, expressions that at times looked almost human, and he would remember those expressions when he began to draw his animal cartoon characters later. Years later, Walter uh, drew up plans to build a small theme park in little Marceline. Uh, Sadly, those plans died when he did. In 1910, Elias fell ill with typhoid fever. Not good. Pneumonia. The farm failed, and the Disneys now moved into a rented house. So sad times for the Disney clan. Another another business failure for, for Elias. First yorn, trees. <laughs> Just went to shit. Tried to rebuild my life in Chicago, and, well, that didn't work out. Thought I could make a name for myself in Marceline, Missouri. But uh, typhoid got me. Sooner pneumonia as well, probably a few other ailments, but I, my God, McGill's pop hit hard at one point and blew my butthole off, just trying to make a name for myself and provide for my family, 1911 moving once again, the Disney family relocated to Kansas City, Missouri, uh, they lived in a, oh wait, <laughs> did I just say that, um, oh no, I didn't say that, that sounded exactly like we were just talking, I got carried away in my little fiddle, fiddle. Uh, daydream, uh, no, know they did move once again in 1911, and they and they relocated to Kansas City, Missouri. I, I was I was thinking they're already living there. Not yet. Easy comments. They're still in Marceline. Now they go to Kansas City, and they rent a house at 2706 East 31st Street. They stay there until they buy a modest house at 3028 Bella, Bellefontaine Street in September of 1914. Walt and Ruth attend Benton Elementary School, just a few blocks away. On July 1st, 1911, Elias purchased his newspaper delivery route for the Kansas City Star, once again, looking for his next business. Walter and Roy helped their dad deliver papers. Uh, they delivered the morning paper the Kansas City Times to about 700 customers, and they delivered the evening paper the Kansas City Star to more than 600 customers. And how crazy is that? That one time there were morning and evening papers in some cities. I, if I did know that before, I forgot about it. I guess in the days long before the internet and TV and before even radios were used for the news, there was just uh, I don't know a little more demand for for written hold it in your hand today's headlines kind of content. Elias also delivered butter and eggs from a farm in Marceline to his newspaper customers. Dude was a hustler, gotta respect that. Uh, Elias uh, expected his boys to work and help as well. And The Disney boys, you know, developed a strong work ethic from their father at a young age. Uh, they developed such a strong work ethic they even sought out you know their own jobs. Had to get to work between 1911 1916. From the ages of 10 to 15, Walt actually worked selling candy and newspapers on the train that traveled back and forth between Kansas City and Chicago during this time that he started to draw. Quick cartoons, pictures of things he saw on the train rides when he had a free moment. Sometimes he sold these pictures to family and friends. Imagine if you had one of those uh, pictures hidden amongst your family's keepsakes. One early drawing of Walt Disney. uh, Some early sketches Walt made when he was 16 sold back in 2015 for 200 grand. Uh, During World War I, Walt drew patriotic cartoons for his high school newspaper. Those drawings displayed his passionate support for the troops, included helpful suggestions like buying uh, saving stamps or eating less um, uh, so more food could be sent overseas for the troops. Uh, Caricature of the Kaiser usually took the brunt of Walt's youthful fervor, as did many people who didn't join the army. Walt felt they were slackers. He was a huge supporter of the military, and he'd be extremely patriotic for the entirety of his life. Elias sold his paper route on March 17th, 1917. Back when when I guess you could sell paper routes. That seems weird to me. Uh, He'd been investing in the Ozel Company of Chicago since 1912. He's got to get back to Chicago, make his money there. And he wants to move back to the city. Moves back in 1917 to take an active role in its management. The Disney's rented Chicago flat at 1523 Ogden Avenue. The Ozel Company made soda pop, an all-natural fruit-based carbonated beverage that kept folks off the booze and the jag juice. Walt didn't move when his parents did, but he would soon join his family later in the year. And at his father's urging, he took a job at the Ozel factory floor, washing jelly jars, pulping and apples, and then uh, packing cartoons. And then poor Elias, uh, he would lose his ass in his Ozel soda pop venture. Within a few short years, the company goes bankrupt, and all his investing, all his hustling for this company uh, leads to shit, leads to absolute nothing. You'd think after failures and orange business and... I on the farm that I could at least make some of that goddamn soda pop money. People seem to enjoy it. <laughs> no, I'm fucking cursed. I hate my family. I hate my jobs. I hate my life. Only, I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. Uh, June 22nd, it's the fiddle music. I start playing that song and it just takes over. Uh, June 22nd, 1917, Walt's brother Roy Disney joins the Navy. and Walt's other two older brothers, Ray and Herbert, they were already serving in the Army. Not wanting to be the slacker he'd been making fun of in his cartoons, wanting to follow in his older brother's footsteps, Walt tries to enlist, but he's rejected from the army for being underage. So he joins the Red Cross instead, and he's sent to France for a year to drive an ambulance as a member of the American Ambulance Corps, only 15 years old. Hot damn, man. Dude was a go-getter. He would later tell his daughter, Ruth, when she was uh, a grown woman, I tried fighting in the war at 15. I joined the Red Cross when they wouldn't let me in, and I, I did what I could. Did that after working on a train the previous five years. I made my own fortune through blood, sweat, and tears. And what the fuck have you done, Ruth? What have you done, you spoiled shit? You've sucked upon my generous teat for too long. You've trust-funded your way into shame and dishonor. you fucked the sons of half my upper management. If you could, I'd bet you'd fuck Peter Pan and Prince Eric and even Goofy. Get out of my house! You're not my daughter! Sorry, that never happened. That'd be dramatic as shit, though. Uh, Walt, to my knowledge, never said any of that to his daughter. Uh, What he did say to his daughter regarding his experiences in France for World War I many years later was, the things I did during those 11 months I was overseas added up to a lifetime of experience. It was such a valuable experience that I feel that if we uh, had to send our boys into the Army, or if we have to send our boys into the Army, we should send them even younger than we do. I know being on my own at an early age made me more self-reliant. Even even younger? Uh, I wish you would have been more specific with the age. We should be sending 10-year-olds over to the front lines to fight the goddamn Nazis. Kids today are too soft. Complaining about how hard fractions are. About not getting enough mac and cheese every night for dinner. Killing Nazis in the trenches of Western Europe. That's hard. Then he just slams his full glass of bourbon, neat, down on the table after pounding it in one gulp. That's the Walt I want to daydream about. Uh, During his time in World War I, Walt was assigned to a chateau in St. Saucyre. It was so dank and chilly, he wrapped himself in newspapers before going to sleep to stay warm. Later, he was transferred to the evacuation hospital number five near Paris, after which he was transferred directly into Paris and assigned to the motor pool. Uh, he spent his spare time drawing posters, cartoons for soldiers, and painting cartoons on jackets. And if you had one of those jackets hiding on a hanger somewhere, you don't have a lot of money right now, i bet I bet you at least 10 bucks for it. Look, look, I'm not an antiques roadshow expert. I'm going to say, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll bet my life, you would get upwards of $10 for one of those jackets. Uh, in October of 1919, Walt returned to the U.S. at the age of 18, moved back to Kansas City. On a recommendation from his brother Roy, he landed a job at the Posman Rubin Commercial Art Studio for 50 bucks a month. Located at 14th and Oak, it's sadly now long gone. It was a stone's throw from where the T-Mobile Center now sits, if you're a Kansas City sucker. Uh, a place where Rages Against the Machine and Run the Jewels were supposed to perform last month before COVID took a giant infected shit on live music. Uh, anyway, young Walt had an apprenticeship drawing commercial illustrations for advertising, theater programs, and catalogs. Working right next to where many of you Kansas City listeners have probably walked around buzzed after a good show. Looking, looking at you, Johnny Dare. At uh, the art studio, Walt met cartoonist, Ube Iwerks. Or no, excuse me, Ube. Ube Iwerks. Um, uh, no, no, it's Ube Ert. That's right, his full name. This guy's name kills me. Ube Ert Iwerks. Better known, there we go, as Ube Iwerks. Because his full name is even shittier than what he settled on being called, uh, being called, uh, no offense, Oob. (laughs) This guy, one of the most famous animators really of all time. That's not commonly known. And just what a weird name to me. Oob. Uh, the two became lasting friends. I, I works, was born in Kansas city, Missouri, and then probably ruthlessly teased his entire childhood for having a terrible, silly name. It caused him to withdraw, you know, use all the time a normal kid would spend playing with actual friends to get, to get really, really good at, at drawing. I'm guessing. Considered by many to be Walt's oldest friend, Oob Iwerks, uh, would spend most of his career working for Disney and would be responsible for the distinctive style of the earliest Disney animated cartoons, including a certain famous mouse. (laughs) Do you know which mouse I'm alluding to right now? Can you guess? Did you guess Mickey Mouse? You did? Holy shit! You're like a psychic or something! That was super impressive. Your mama didn't raise no fool. Uh, After Christmas of 1919, the Roseman Rubin Commercial Art Studios revenue declines and both Walt and Oob are laid off. They start their own business, the short-lived iWorks Disney commercial artist, but without many clients and only one decent name between the two of them. It doesn't take off. And the two decide that Walt should work as an apprentice at the Kansas City film ad company where he makes commercials based on cutout animation. And this is where Walt gets his first exposure to animation. Uh, His first love would always be comics, actually. And and super cool. Before this week's suck, I always thought that Walt developed his initial cartoon shops in the Los Angeles area. Nope. Kansas City was the first incubator of his later animated empire. Around this time, Walt begins experiment with the camera, doing hand-drawn cell animation, and that's C-E-L, not two L's. Uh, hand-drawn cell animation, which is a kind, of, a kind of animation that allows parts of the cartoon set to be repeated on each slide or cell, so you only have to redraw the part of the picture that's moving, which saves time. Walt decided that cell animation was much more profitable than cutout animation, where each frame has to have its elements cut out, Instead of drawn, way more time-consuming, you know, rearranged for each, you know, uh, camera s- slide, um, for each frame. But he couldn't persuade his bosses at the Kansas City Ad Company to try sell animation, so he quit. He wasn't going to work with dinosaurs. From an early age, he knew you got to innovate, got to push, 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 evolve or die. Uh, Walt opened a new business with coworker, a co-worker from the film ad co, Fred Harmon. Walt was then contracted by Milton Field, who owned the local Newman Theater, to animate 12 cartoons called Newman's laugh And Walt decided to make the first six modernized versions of fairy tales, and he studied Aesop's fables as a model. And in May of 1921, these laugh were a huge success, and they are super cool. If you're an animation fan, do a YouTube search of Newman's laugh uh, Both amazing how far animation has come since then, and also, in my opinion, just how good these illustrations and this animation was – Way back in 1921. Uh, Walt established Laugh-A-Gram Studios off of the success of these cartoons and was able to hire more artists, including, including his friend Iwerks. But the studio was not profitable for long and sadly went into bankruptcy just two years later in 1923. But like his father before him, Walt wouldn't let a couple failed businesses stand in his way. Following in his dad's footsteps, uh, he moves to Denver and he starts making some of that fiddle scratch. Oh! cartoons. I got this fiddle. What can go wrong? No, he didn't do that. He didn't follow his footsteps uh, that closely. Like his dad, he just didn't give up. On July of 1923, at the age of 21, Walt decides to move to Hollywood. Showbiz. Mickey Mouse wants his fat bottom spanked. Minnie's ready for a healthy dose with some chunky peanut butter. That's how they do it in Hollywood. Uh, Don't worry about that, new listener. Uh, An old listener, sorry about Chunky. I know that was a bit much, but you know, Albert Fish, what do you do? You You can't control him. Uh, Walt's older brother, Roy, had already moved to Hollywood, where he was recovering from tuberculosis. Walt moved out to be both closer to his brother and also because he hoped to become a live-action film director. It was around this time that Walt was contacted by Margaret J. Winkler, first woman to ever produce animated films. Uh, Margaret had recently lost the rights to several of her films and needed new stories. Damn showbiz swindlers had bamboozled her, as many of them continue to do to people today. She'd seen the 12-minute Alice Wonder, Alice's Wonderland film, which was never shown theatrically. It was a mix of live action and cartoon in the style of Mary Poppins that Walt had made for laugh grams and she wanted Walt to make six more Alice cartoons for her. On October 16th, 1923, Roy and Walt signed a contract with Margaret, Margaret Winkler and called themselves the Disney Brothers Studio. Humble beginnings. I love this. They started working out of their uncle, Robert Disney's garage at 4406 Kingswell Avenue in Los Feliz. A few weeks later, they rent a room at the back of a real estate office at 4651 Kingswell Avenue. A block in from that Starbucks at Prospect in Vermont, Los Feliz, LA listeners. uh, Roy operated a secondhand camera. The brothers hired two people to paint the cells. And Walt, of course, did the animation. In February 1924, the studio moves next door to the real estate office into a space of their own, 4649 Kingswell Avenue. Walt hires the first animator, not also named Walt Disney, uh, Rollin Hamilton. Written in the window of their nondescript low-rent space is Disney Brothers Studio. Awesome. Walt and Roy didn't come from money. They didn't get big investors to seed them. They grew as they could afford to. They moved up off a of sweat equity. Uh, in July, Walt persuades, please get yourself a nickname that doesn't rhyme with Boob, Ooh, or Iwerks to uh, move to Hollywood from Kansas City to work for the Disney brothers. And for the next four years, Walt works on these Alice pictures with, with Boob, Iwerks, and continues expanding his business. These early films, which you can now also find on YouTube, were theatrically released back in the silent film era when a movie theater ticket purchased a, a whole lineup of, of early entertainment, featuring a, a feature film that they would typically run a little over an hour, uh, several supporting works from categories such as the second feature, like a B feature, that would typically run uh, also a few minutes over an hour, maybe a short 10, 15-minute comedy, or a five, 10-minute cartoon in front of those, sometimes a travelogue, often a newsreel. And Disney cranked out these little cartoons for these for these films, these little feature film opening acts, entertainment appetizers. Then in early 1925, Walt started doing a little less drawn. And a lot more deep dicking. You heard me. It's kind of true. He still did a lot of drawing, but he also did start doing some deep dicking. He hired an artist named Lillian Bounds, and the two quickly fell in love. And they got married on July 13th, 1925. Walt would later quip, I couldn't afford to pay her, so I married her. Little Idaho connection with Lillian. Lillian was born in Spalding, Idaho, February 15th, 1899. Grew up in Lapway, Idaho, on the Nez Pierce Indian Reservation. Town I drive straight through every time I visit my family down in the Riggins and Whitebird area. Uh, Lapway small, population of around 1,100, and it's it's not in great shape. Poverty is the norm, uh, pretty rough. So much so that I once drove the kids through it just to be like, hey, you know what? This is this is how life is for some people. And, and you gotta have compassion about that and you, and you gotta work hard to make sure that you don't end up in kind of like dire straits. I mean, it's it, it's pretty rough. The nicest, the nicest part of the town by far has always appeared to me to be the high school. So much nicer, I've always wondered... Like, why did he get so much money? And, and the rest of the town didn't. Well, now I know. Over the years, mostly in the 80s, Lillian Disney donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to Lapways High School. So it was a pretty cool. Hail Lillian. Uh, Lillian moved to Los Angeles in 1923 and Walt was right about not being able to afford to pay her. Roy and Walt often asked her not to cash her $15 a week paychecks. They just didn't have the money. To kick off 1926, Walt perched a lot at 2719 Hyperion Avenue in the na- neighborhood of Silver Lake, close to Los Feliz. Construction began on a new studio. In February, when the studio on Hyperion Avenue was finished, the company was renamed Walt Disney Studios instead of Disney Brothers Studio. And in March of that year, devastated by having his contributions to the young studio taken out of its name, Roy threw himself into the Pacific Ocean by jumping off the Santa Monica Pier and he drowned. Huh. Uh, so yeah, so that's a you know a dark spot, obviously, in uh, Walt's timeline. Mm-hmm. By July of 1927, Walt had gotten tired of the mixed animation and live action format of the Alice Pictures. Uh, he wanted to produce animation films that were all animation. To star in this new series, he created a character named Oswald, the Lucky Rabbit, and contracted the shorts at fifteen hundred dollars each. And Lucky would become Walt's first real success. As a character, uh, the character became a huge star in one real animation. Also, uh, before I move on, Roy did not drown. (laughs) Gosh dang, that didn't happen. Uh, He was still the co-founder and he'd be Disney's CEO from 1929 to 1971. And if you ever felt sad about the name change, you know, I'm guessing he just probably wiped away his tears with $100 bills and threw them into trash cans made out of diamonds and gold. Uh, Within a year, Walt made 26 of these Oswald cartoons. And then when he tried to get some additional money from a distributor for a second year of the cartoons, He ran into some trouble that could have broken a lesser man. After traveling to New York in February of 1928 to renegotiate his contract, he discovers that Disney's New York distributor, uh, Margaret Winkler, and her husband, Charles Mintz, had gone behind his back and signed on almost all of his animators, hoping to make the Oswald cartoons in their own studio for less money without Walt Disney. On rereading his contract, Walt realizes he doesn't own the rights to Oswald. He came up with him, doesn't own the rights. The distributor did. Fucking Margaret! The swindler! The swindle becomes a swindler! I hope Margaret's burning in Toontown hell right now. Getting getting pitchforked by an evil Mickey. <laughs> oh, you thought you could fuck Walt, huh, Margaret? <laughs> Nobody fucks Walt. De- Devil Mickey makes certain of that. <laughs> oh, wait till Donald and Daisy get to gnashing their teeth on you! Oh boy! And Goofy, Goofy's gonna fuck your shit up! <laughs> I don't know. It's close. Uh, it was a painful lesson for Walt. One he had to learn. Uh, from this point on, Walt makes sure that he owns the rights to all of his cartoons. Uh, sadly, he had to walk away from Oswald and start over. While he'd lost his animation staff, his faithful friend, Iwerks, did stay by his side. Good good old boob twerk, or whatever the fuck his name is. Uh, Walt's on the train ride back to California from New York, fired up about having a character that could have made a fortune for him, stolen. He plays a he plays a little game of success as the best form of revenge, and he begins to develop a character that will quickly build a media empire unlike any other in history. Little mouse character. Based on an actual mouse he'd seen running around the Laugh-O-Gram studio, a mouse he didn't initially name Mickey, he named it Mortimer Mouse, and it was Idaho's own Lillian Disney who thought that Mortimer was a little too pretentious. She was once to suggest Mickey. Old, old Boob Fryquark probably thought Mortimer was a fantastic name. Uh, Walt returned to the studio, worked uh, with Oob to help develop the character. It was uh, ITwerk or Pie Jerk or iWorks, whoever his name was, who could draw Mickey Mouse. While Walt provided Mickey's voice, or he would draw. They could both draw him, but he was one who would draw him after uh, Disney came up with him. And then Walt would provide Mickey's voice until 1947. Uh, the first two Mickey Mouse cartoons were silent animations produced by Walt, Ron, and their wives and iWorks. The first was Plain Crazy. The second was The Galloping Gaucho. And the two earliest Mickey Mouse films failed to find a distributor. Walt realized he needed to kick things up a notch. And to take things to the next level, he may have plagiarized the greatest American comic of the 20th century, Pootie and Juju. Mm -hmm. Uh, Walt read every single Pootie and Juju comic he could find in the train ride back from California or, you know, back to California from New York. And he he read the rest once he made it back to L.A. And, And when he made the famous cartoon Steamboat Willie... You know, it it seems like he may have took some stuff from the uh, Pootie and Juju comics. It it seemed like an animated Pootie and Juju, if you're familiar. Uh, In this classic animated short, Steamboat Willie, Mickey arrives at Podunk Landing. Really? Podunk? Pootie? Come on! You see it. He later pulls Minnie on board the ship, and you can tell, uh, you know, by what she's wearing, it's clearly the month of June. June? Juju? Come on! Hiding in plain sight. And then... If you're not convinced yet, when Captain Pete pulls the steamboat whistle, the melody sounds a lot like "Put it in your lunchbox Shirley." Right? And then the musical scoring for the whole cartoon is clearly "Too little, too diddle-pooty" on repeat. "Too little, too diddle If you if you if you listen You, can. you know what? That was all that, that was nonsense. Uh if you don't get the Pooty and Juju reference, don't even don't even worry about it. it. Takes too long to explain and none of that ever happened in this portion of the multiverse. Uh, in this multiverse universe, when the two earliest Mickey Mouse films failed to find a distributor, Walt realized he needed he needed to kick it up a notch. That part's true. And to take things to the next level, he decides to do what no one had ever done before, include synchronized sound in a cartoon. So he hires a professional composer, Carl Stalling, to write the music for Steamboat Willie, the third Mickey Mouse cartoon, not the first as I actually always believed. On November 18th, 1928, Steamboat Willie opens at the Colon Theater in New York. Weird name. Hope it was pronounced differently than it's spelled. Were the the names Small Intestine Auditorium and Guts Playhouse taken already? Uh, Steamboat Willie receives rave reviews. I have to imagine Walt said at least once to himself, if not to anyone else that night, fuck Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. I'll bury that flea-bitten cocksucker. I'm coming for you, Margaret. I'm coming. And hell's coming with me. I don't know, something like that. Uh, Film companies all wanted the rights to Mickey Mouse. And Walt, not quite 27 years old, but now a savvy veteran in his in the still new fields of animation and cinema, he wasn't going to give anybody else an easy deal. After a bidding war, he goes uh, with Pat Powers, head of Universal Studios, who wants to promote Cinephone, a new type of audio for film. Walt returns to California with an initial contract for only $2,500, less than 30 grand in today's money, but more importantly, complete and total ownership of Mickey Mouse. Now Mickey needs some friends. 1929, Walt creates the Silly Symphony series. Going off the success of animation with sound, he writes stories told to the use of musical cues. These stories featured Mickey's new pals, including a love interest, Minnie Mouse, his mush mouth buddy, I can relate, Donald Duck, and a couple of dogs. Not, not goofy. Not yet. Uh, the first in the Silly Symphony series was called Skeleton Dance. It was released in Technicolor, a brand-new color technique that Walt Disney held the rights to for two years. Things were looking great, but soon, legal trouble showed up once again on the horizon. It seemed like the deal with Pat Powers was going sour. With his newfound success, Walt asked Powers for an increase in his fee. Powers refused, and then he also signed er- uh, iWorks for more money. The friend that had stuck by with, you know, Walt uh, through thick and thin is now gone. Cl- classic boob frightworks. Just as Mickey Mouse is becoming a national craze, it seems like Walt's going to lose it all over again. 1930, Walt breaks off negotiations with Pat Powers. Suck my dick, Powers! I killed that lucky rabbit, and I'll bury you so deep your name won't appear in anything other than Wikipedia and a podcast after you die. <laughs> Kind of true. Uh, the studio couldn't afford a lawsuit, so Walt walks away and signs with Columbia Pictures. The same year, Roy Disney signs the first contract for merchandising. The first piece of Disney merch was it was a children's writing tablet with Mickey Mouse on it. Uh, for you Disney lovers, Pluto made his appearance in a Mickey Mouse cartoon, The Chain Gang, this year. I always forget about Pluto. I get it mixed up with Goofy. Uh, just so you're not mixed up, they're both dogs, but Goofy is a talking humanized dog, and Pluto is like a dog dog. Pluto doesn't... talk, And that's, that's one way to tell them apart. Another other ways, uh, just remember, Pluto's dick is a red rocket. Goofy has a slightly tan human-like phallus. And also, neither one of them are Jangles. So who, who really cares, you know? Uh, moving on. Uh, the first official theater-based Mickey Mouse Club also kicks off in 1930 on January 11th. It was conducted at the Fox Dome Theater in Ocean Park, California. In order to watch a live Disney-themed show, people would have to become a member of the Disney Mickey Mouse Club. Smart. Uh, 60 theaters would host clubs by March 31st. The club released its first issue of the official bulletin of the Mickey Mouse Club on April 15th, 1930. Had no idea that, that club started way back in the 30s. I thought it started in the 50s. Uh, despite widespread popularity, despite the success of Mickey, it was still difficult for Walt to keep his business afloat. Kicking things off during the Great Depression? Not helping. He was overworking himself and his employees as well. Despite having a good team, he'd still lost his best animator and one of his best friends and that former employer of goob fly smirks. Then his wife has a miscarriage in 1931. And then he has a full-on nervous breakdown in October of 1931. He takes a vacation on doctor's orders. He and Lillian go to Cuba, then take a cruise over to Panama. And in 1932, he's back, baby. Uh, Goofy makes his first appearance in the cartoon Mickey's Review, seven-minute long animated feature released on May 12, 1932. Also in 32, Disney requests that Columbia Pictures pay him a little more money. Increases, uh, increases advance on each cartoon to the amount of $15,000. And Columbia says, for some talking animal bullshit, go fuck yourself. They may not have said that, but they did decline his request. So Walt, never afraid to burn one bridge when there's another bridge leading to a a better offer, he takes his business to United Artists, who agrees to the $15,000 proposal. United Artists also agrees to grant Disney two years exclusive use of three-color Technicolor. Using Technicolor, the first Disney color cartoon released on July 30th, 1932, called Flowers and Trees. Eight minutes of animated glory. Uh, The first commercially released film to be produced in the full-color three-strip Technicolor process. And in November of that year, Flower and Trees wins the Oscar at the 5th Academy Awards for the category that was then called Short Subjects Cartoons, a category introduced that year. So Walt's pulling a Jeffersons; He's moving on up. On May 27th, 1933, Three Little Pigs, the 36th Silly Symphony, is released. Audiences everywhere loved it. That's the first Disney cartoon I can remember watching, Three Little Pigs. Uh, Laying on the living room floor, Papa Ward and Grandma Betty's little little one-level, three-bedroom, one-bath cottage that was the coolest house in the entire world to me when I was a little kid. Eating cheddar, cheese slices, and salting crackers for a snack and smelling Grandma Betty cook dinner. Those are are some good days. And Disney was right there for it. Uh, Animator Chuck Jones observed, this was the first time that anybody had ever brought characters to life in an animated cartoon. There were three characters who looked alike but acted differently. And this is a turning point for Walt Disney Studios. The gripping story of The Three Little Pigs led the producers to the realization that an emotionally loaded story was just as important as good animation. So the studio now began to hire storytellers who worked in a story department, separate from animators, who worked on writing narratively interesting stories on storyboards. So progress, push, 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 got to innovate, evolve. On December 18th, 1933, Lillian gives birth to Diane Marie Disney, the couple's first and only biological child. She'd grow up to be a patron of the arts as well as a lifelong classical music enthusiast and philanthropist. She'd also become a historian of sorts, writing articles and books about her father. She'd go on to have seven children of her own who, unsurprisingly, would fight bitterly over Walt's enormous fortune when she died. Uh, the family business would ironically destroy many Disney family relationships as a sea of lawsuits followed the last of Walt's children dying in 1993, and then the grandchildren uh, you know, could only get their inherited millions, hundreds of millions, if three trustees felt they demonstrated maturity and financial ability to manage and utilize such funds in a prudent and responsible manner, they didn't feel that way about the grandkids, and shit got crazy. More money, more problems. Uh, June 9th, 1934, Donald Duck debuts in a silly symphony film called The, Little, uh, the Wise Little Hen. Uh, Walt's requiring more than ever from his animators now. By all accounts, he was an extremely demanding boss. His animators would use the code, the man is in the forest, as a warning to other workers to get busy when Walt was walking by. I get it. You know, Walt wasn't demanding because it was fun. No, not because he wanted to be a tyrant. He just had a lot of shit he wanted to get done. Had a, had a vision, he wanted to realize. Uh, he needed more output than ever. He believed that the most profitable cartoon of all would have to be a feature length. No more shorts. This is, this is new. People hadn't done this before. In 1934, the studio begins a four-year-long project based on the fairy tale of Snow White. They want it to be a feature-length film. When news leaks out about this project, many in the film industry predicts it will bankrupt Walt and his company. Industry insiders actually nicknamed Walt's feature movie plan, Disney's Folly. Uh, It was to be the first ever cell animated full length feature film. And the budget of the film would balloon to 1.5 million, which was an unbelievable sum at the time. Uh, According to a US inflation calculator, that'd be uh, almost 30 million today. Might not sound much, you know, like much compared to, you know, today's big action blockbuster budgets that will go over 200 million and stuff. But, but that wasn't the way movies were made back then. That wasn't the norm at all. Disney was still a small production studio. Uh, 1934 would also uh, mark the beginning of what is known as the golden age of animation, that would last until 1941 when so many characters were created. You know, especially just uh, between Disney and and Warner Brother alone. Uh, 1935 mostly characterized by Walt phasing out the Mickey Mouse Club; it just wasn't profitable, despite being popular, and its initial incarnation would have last would last only three years. December 21st, 1936, Lillian and Walt adopt Sharon May Disney, their second child who was six weeks old at the time, Uh, she would grow up, shockingly, to be an adult film actress who starred in several erotic movies. They were popular in underground theaters in the 60s. Scandal! Movies with titles like Disney Does Denver and Daisy Duck Makes Some Fuck Bucks and uh, Miss Disney Drinks Some Goofy Juice and then the classic that still actually does get a lot of views, The Happiest Puss on Earth. And of course, uh, that was crude nonsense. That was boorish gobbledygook. Uh, In reality, Sharon went on to be elected to the board of directors at the Walt Disney Company. She was also a trustee of the California Institute of the Arts, the Marianne Frosdig Center of Educational Therapy, and the Curtis School Foundation. Basically, uh, she grew up to do a lot of nice, rich lady shit. She signed big checks to worthy causes and attended board meetings where everyone was super-duper nice to her because they wanted more of her dad's money. Sounds pretty fucking sweet. Uh, A year later, December 21st, 1937. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs premieres at the Carthay Circle Theater in Los Angeles, California, and it was not the flop many in town predicted. Its success would pave the way for Disney to go from being a cool, artsy little animation studio to being a media empire. Snow White, huge commercial success, grossed over $66 million. That's over a, a billion in today's money during its 1937 theatrical run before reaching $185 million with the help of re-releases in 1983, 87, 93, uh, today, adjusted for inflation, it's still the 10th highest grossing film of all time. It also won eight Academy Awards. Uh, as a joke, the Academy presented Disney with a with a full-size Oscar and seven miniature Oscars. And they were presented by a 10-year-old Shirley Temple. Within six months, Disney's paid off all their bank loans, were putting money in a corporate savings account for future features. Disney's Folly was a grand slam home run. Uh, with work on Snow White finished, the studio begins producing Pinocchio in early 1938, Fantasia in November of the same year never cared for fantasia I, I know a lot of people love it just uh eh, i always thought that was boring november 26 1938 walt's mom flora passes away and the story of how she dies is terribly sad uh, she died as a result of an accident that would haunt walt for the rest of his life money sadly does not insulate you from tragedy after the success of snow white walt and roy disney celebrated by giving their parents a new home in north hollywood near the disney studios in burbank how, how cool every kid's dream right if you have a good relationship with your parents at least to become rich enough to be able to give your parents a luxurious retirement. I used to daydream about doing exactly that for my parents all the time when I was a kid. Going to buy mom a big house. A uh, record show that employees from the studio built the house very quickly, too quickly, and didn't put enough stock into safety. Uh, and I have no doubt that Walt and Roy pushed them to build it fast. I mean, they wanted to see mom smile and cry tears of joy as soon as possible, I'm sure. Less than a month after moving in, Flora complains to her sons of problems with the gas furnace. Not good. Studio repairmen sent out to the house, but the problem persists. A couple weeks later, Flora writes a letter to her daughter, Ruth, uh, describing the wonderful new home, but again, complaining of the fumes coming from the furnace. Gas leak. Uh, how sad, she knew. Still wasn't fixed. Then on November 26 1938, Flora dies of asphyxiation at age 70 due to the defective furnace, right? It's just a carbon monoxide poisoning. Prior to the gas leak, she'd been in perfect health. Of course, Walt and Roy blamed themselves. I personally... I personally blame Roy, okay? Listen, listen, hear me out. Walt's making, you know, sure that the movies are awesome, right? He's coming up with a lot of drawings. He's fucking busy. And what's Roy doing? I mean, can't you at least make sure you don't kill your fucking mom, Roy? Huh? Is that too much to ask, Roy? Sorry, that's where that came from. Uh, Lillian is entombed next to her husband in Glendale's Forest Lawn Memorial Park Cemetery. Uh, Roy and Walt were obviously crushed. And this accident may have made its way into many of Disney's most famous movies. Have you ever noticed that the mothers of Disney heroes and heroines are usually dead? Few, if any, have uh, only single-parent mothers. Stepmothers are usually evil, bad replacement for a loving mother gone too soon. Uh, Many have speculated this all comes from Walt's loss of his mom, especially because two of the most remembered and notable examples of this phenomenon occurred directly after she died. The long imprisonment of Mrs. Dumbo, or Mrs. Jumbo, excuse me, in Dumbo, uh, which came out three years later, 1941, But, you know, been worked on, you know, work began on it shortly after his mom's death and the dramatic death of Bambi's mother in Bambi, which came out in 1942. And there's many other examples from Pinocchio to Peter Pan, uh, who uses Wendy as a disturbing kind of girlfriend, kind of mom surrogate. Ariel has six sisters and a dad. No mom. Uh, Jasmine from Aladdin. No mom. Belle from Beauty and the Beast. No mom. In the Jungle Book, Mowgli's mom is killed. And Tarzan, both of Tarzan's parents are killed. Jane's mom is nowhere to be found. Even Goofy from the Goofy movie is a single dad to his son, Max. And the list goes on and on. If Walt's mom was gone, then none of his cartoons would get to have moms either. Walt would make his cartoons suffer. They would pay for what his stupid, careless, mom-killing brother Roy did. Hey, to be clear. Roy Disney didn't have anything to do with his mom's death. I want to make that very clear. It just, I just being silly. I, I'm crazy. Listen, Disney is a sue-happy company. with powerful lawyers. I can't afford to fight. So, <laughs> just nonsense. Don't even forget about it. Uh, I mentioned Bambi a moment ago. In late 1938, the studio started the production on Bambi, which wouldn't be released for several years because of something Walt did not anticipate, animators uh, needing practice drawing animals that he was maybe familiar with, but they weren't. A pair of fawns had to be shipped in from uh, the area of present-day Baxter State Park in Maine to the studio so that the artist could watch the fawns and replicate how they moved. And how cool is that attention to detail? Got to get those fawn movements perfect. The new Burbank campus for Walt Disney Animation Studios opens in December of 1939. Walt uses his Snow White money to buy 51 acres in Burbank, 500 South Buena Vista Street. Still there, still in use. Uh, The new soon-to-be Empire has a proper headquarters. On February 7th, 1940, Pinocchio opens at the Center Theater in New York City. Six months later, November 13th, 1940, Fantasia opens at New York's Broadway Theater. Neither movie performs well at the box office. I told you Fantasia wasn't any good. Uh, they don't do well partly because revenue from Europe drops following the start of World War II in 1939. Studio made a loss on both pictures and was deeply in debt by the end of February, 1941. So much drama. How stressed was Walt, right? He was, he was right there. He just, he just gotten out of debt. He's killing it. Now he's fucking back in debt, right? There's a war going on. There's a chance he could lose it all. April of 1940, due to losses from Pinocchio and Fantasia, along with the cost of building the new studio in Burbank, Walt decides to offer public stock in Disney. Walton Roy never wanted to do that. They value control over their company a lot. But again, money's not looking good. And 600,000 shares of common stock sell at $5 a piece. Now they could afford to employ their thousand workers. That is some serious overhead. And, and how many people have become millionaires, specifically from Disney stock? And how many people would have never made little fortunes had they not offered those stocks up? I love thinking about the butterfly effects of all the decisions uh, had they not been made. You know, where it just went to the right. What if it would have went left? What would have happened then? 1940, the studio needs a needs a hit bad. They began production on Dumbo. Walt originally planned it as a 30-minute film, but then expanded it into a feature film of 64 minutes. Upon its release on November 23rd, 1941, it nets a $850,000 profit. Um, a little under $16 million today. Not a huge score, but a score all the same. As we learned in last week's Suck, on November 10th, 1940, 38-year-old Walt agrees to become an informant from the for the FBI. Uh, Walt has a close relationship with the controversial FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover. Walt hated commies as much as Hoover did. Remember how his dad was a socialist? Probably formed his hatred back then, just uh, in opposition to his father's opinions. Disney allegedly gave Hoover access to some Disney scripts and allowed him to make changes, although there's no evidence he actually did that and that he interfered with any of the classic animated features. Uh, later, 1954, Disney would be made full special agent-in-charge contact SAC contact, a title given to reliable informants for the FBI who could be trusted with equipment. Records indicate Disney continued to help the FBI all the way until his death in 1966. Now let's back up to 1940. 1940 movie studios begin to unionize. Walt is pissed. He sees this as some pinko commie bullshit. And these unions almost kill his company. Before we find out how, this is the best spot I could find for a quick little sponsor break. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. dot com slash timesuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are fifteen dollars a month when you purchase a three month plan, you're probably thinking, "What's the catch?" Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just. 15 bucks a month and no catch all plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5g network and you can use your own phone with any mint mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over and in addition to saving money like over a 50 percent price drop from what i was paying before the network quality in my experience is better than it was with my old service provider to get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just fifteen bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to fifteen bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to, where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it, though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of Net Carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of Net Carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. I hope you take advantage of some of those deals. Uh, back to 1940 now and Walt having a big problem with some new animation unions. Two of these unions actively recruited Walt's animators. The animators, angry about long work hours with poor pay, unfulfilled promises to share the profits from Snow White, had alienated from Walt himself, who'd become increasingly worried about profitability and spent more time talking to lawyers than his animators, and they felt that unionization was their only option. Before 1941, Art Babbitt, one of the highest-paid animators at Disney and the man who'd created Goofy, he considered Walt his good friend. Babbitt was unquestionably one of Disney's star artists. In return, Walt Disney trusted Babbitt with the brand and the characters he loved so dearly, then in 1940, Babbitt wanted a small raise for his inkers and painters, who at $18 and $16 a week were the lowest paid in the industry. But Roy, fucking Roy, said there was nothing he could do. So Babbitt joined the Guild, the Animators Union, and Walt, who saw the Union as his enemy, fired Babbitt for doing this. And then three days later, the Disney strike begins on May 29, 1941, and it lasts for five weeks. Uh, the strikers picketed 24 hours a day, carrying signs illustrated with Disney characters. And they would chant protests in the characters' voices. Fair pay for all of us. Roy killed his mom, but he can't kill us. Ha 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 This puppet will break you up. <laughs> they didn't protest as characters, but that would have been that would have been awesome, though, if they would have. Across from studio and outdoor cafeteria, sponsored by sympathizer, uh, sponsored by sympathizers, served three meals daily. Striking artists drew sketches, distributed to the press. Teams of picketers, you know, rushed any theater screening a Disney picture. It's a big problem for Walt. The president of the United States even got involved. FDR sent a federal mediator who found in the guild's favor on literally every single issue. The studio would sign a closed shop union contract with the guild. Wages would rise 25% to the industry's peak. Should the company propose layoffs, an independent joint committee would review them. Each striker would get 100 hours in back pay. Huge win for the animators and a huge loss for Walt. A huge loss for Walt, excuse me. The studio is now more than $3 million in debt due to the strike and the loss of revenue from the war. Walt was pissed. When he appeared in front of the House Committees on Un-American Activities in Washington as part of his informant job, Disney accused some of his animators who'd gone on strike of being commies. It would be years before the company fully recovered. Uh, September 13th, 1931, Elias Disney dies. While Walt is on tour of South America, he chooses not to return for his father's funeral. He did pay for his dad to be entombed inside a casket made out of solid gold, and he buried him with a fiddle made out of diamonds. Lived a hard life, but a good life. May not have made it as an orange farmer, may not have made it as a soda pop tycoon, may not have made it as a Kansas farmer or as a as a, as a paper route deliverer. He, did, he didn't. He had a tough time, but he but he played mean fiddle. And really, at the end of the day, that's that's what we'll choose to remember him by. Uh, I bet you thought you heard the last of that fiddle, didn't you? Uh, with the war effort ramping up in 1941, there was high demand for war films and propaganda, and Walt formed the Walt Disney Training Films Unit within the company to produce instruction films for the military, uh, such as four methods of flush riveting. Oh, what a great flick. And aircraft production methods. (laughs) So, so entertaining. Uh, The draft took over a third of Walt's artists, actually. And for a time, the army even moved some troops into the Disney studios. On August 9th, 1942, Bambi has its world premiere in London and has disappointing numbers at the box office in both London and the US uh, and other foreign cities, probably because of the uh, war thing happening. By 1946, the company's debt has risen to $4.3 Roy now urges Walt to cut expenses and staff. Walt refuses. After the union strike, Walt became a real My Way the Highway guy. On November 12, 1946, Song of the South is released. Going back to Disney's origins, the film is 30% cartoon and 70% live action. And it premieres in Atlanta to mostly good reviews. There is controversy with this uh, movie. It initially grosses $3.3 million at the box office, netting the studio a profit of $226,000. Uh, almost $3 million in 2017 dollars. The company is still in debt, but surviving. 1947, Walt assigns all of his top talent to make Cinderella, which had been in development for several years, along with Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland. Also in 47, during the post-World War II Red Scare, Walt testifies again before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, he's asked if he ever made propaganda films. This is how he answered. Well, during the war we did. We made quite a few, working with different government agencies. We did one for the Treasury on taxes, and I did four anti-Hitler films. I did one on my own for air power. During the war, we thought it was a different thing. It was the first time we ever allowed anything like that to go into the films. We watched so that nothing gets into the films that would be harmful in any way to any group or any country. We have large audiences of children in different groups, and we try to keep them as free from anything that would offend anybody as possible. We work hard to see that nothing of that sort creeps in. It's interesting that Disney, you know, did admit, and it seems like he felt a little bad for making propaganda pieces, which is, uh, weird as this may sound, is not necessarily immoral, not all propaganda is bad. It takes an enormous effort to wage war to win a war, and the United States was definitely on the right side of World War II. So, getting civilians involved was absolutely necessary. And if some propaganda helped the war effort, then in the grand scheme of things, eh, maybe it was right to make it. But propaganda still is propaganda. Important to at least recognize it when you see it, whether it's good or not. Uh, Walt also told the com- committee that he felt that there was uh, the communism again in the motion picture, picture industry. He said, yes, there is, and there are many reasons why they would like to take it over and gain control and disrupt it. But I don't think they have gotten very far, and I think the industry is made up of good Americans, just like in my plant, good, solid Americans. So he did think there was, you know, commies lurking about, but he didn't think he had a lot of them in his studio. Uh, in 1948, Walt and Lillian find a property for their new home. They've been looking for several years, lived in a couple different locations. Uh, they've been waiting to get their dream home. They wanted to find the right property. It had to be a special property because Walt needed a lot of land because he wanted a train circling his home. Dude loved trains. I would have hated it. Too loud. One of my neighbors put a train in their yard. I might have to blow me up some train tracks. Uh, That train better not schedule a ride between 10 p.m. and 8 a.m. or there's gonna be a neighborhood domestic terrorism incident. Uh, They built their new home, home in Holmby Hills, California, a neighborhood in the district of Westwood in the west side of Los Angeles, where Walt designed a half mile run, called the train's engine Little Bell after his wife. Um, he, he, called it, uh, the Carrollwood Pacific railroad around this time. Walt also got the idea to really build a theme park, something Mickey mouse themed uh, on February 5th, 1950, Cinderella finally debuts in Boston. And it's the first real hit for Disney since their first film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Cinderella earns 8 million at the time, you know, the gross box office rentals. And by the end of its original run earned 4.15 million in the distributor's share of box office gross which made it the fourth highest grossing film in North America in 1950. And the numbers I gave earlier for Snow White were today's numbers. Sorry for that little mix up. Uh, going back and forth between what those numbers represent today and what they were at the time. Uh, Cinderella went on to be the fifth most popular movie at the British box office in 1951. And the film is France's 16th biggest film of all time in terms of admissions with 13.2 million tickets sold. So still in the top uh, 20 over in France. By, by November of 1950, the studio's debt is down to a cool 1.7 mil. No big whoops comparatively. Despite this debt, they uh, have more than enough operating capital and credit to kick out a ton more movies. Many of them uh, will be very profitable. Throughout the early 50s, Walt Disney Studios produces Alice in Wonderland in 1950, Peter Pan in 1950, Sword in the Rose, 1952, Lady in the Tramp, 1953. Lady and the Tramp alone earns over $6 million in profit over its initial the- theatrical run. Disney will never have money problems again. All these movies, they're out there kicking ass, they're building fans. Walt now is, you know, dreaming more and more about the place that these uh, diehard Disney fans can visit. His initial concept, the Mickey Mouse Park, starts with an 11-acre plot of land across Riverside Drive in Burbank. He was going to have a train, merry-go-round, some other attractions. He visits fairs, carnivals, circuses, parks, including the Tivoli Gardens in Denmark, Edpheland in the Netherlands, uh, Greenfield Village, Playland, and Children's Fairyland in the U.S., Beck and Scott Model Village and Railway in England, getting ideas for this new park. He's studying the people who visit these attractions just as much as he's studying the attractions themselves. What do they want? When they need something, how far do they want to walk to get it? I love how fucking meticulous this dude is. He doesn't just like, yeah, let's just build a theme park. No, he visits theme parks all over the world, goes on all the rides. He sits, he watches the people. What are they buying? What are they doing after they buy something? How long are the lines? How are the lines set up? Attention to detail. So important to be successful, I think. Walt borrows on his life insurance, begins to assemble a staff to help plan the park. Before settling on Disneyland, he mulls over names like Mickey Mouse Village, Mickey Mouse Park. Finally, he decides the name of the park should be called Disneyland. Walton and Herb, Herb, I think I like the food, uh, Walton Herb Ryman uh, drew out the preliminary plans for the park over the course of a weekend. He realized he needs more land to realize his vision, and the Mickey Mouse Park Burbank plan is scrapped. Uh, July of 1953, right, he's got to find a bigger spot of land. 1953, Walt commissions the Stanford Research Institute under Harrison Price to find this ideal location. Burbank is out, but uh, you know he's, he still wants to stick somewhere around the LA area. Based on Price's analysis, for which he'd be recognized as a Disney legend in 2003, Walt ends up buying 160 acres of orange groves and walnut trees in Anaheim, California, a little bit bigger than 11 acres, tiny bit. Uh, the park, the whole resort, now currently encompasses 510 acres. 85 for the Disneyland park, and then hundreds more for everything else. Uh, In consulting other amusement park owners, Walt was often met with the same feedback. Don't do it. Other amusement park owners did not believe the park would produce enough revenue to run. And later, Walt would say, Disneyland is a work of love. We didn't go into Disneyland just with the idea of making money. Well, he may not have gone into theme parks with the idea of making money, but holy shit, have they made a lot of fucking money on theme parks. Not this year with COVID, but uh, most years, extremely profitable. Uh, Disney Parks and Resorts brought in $26.2 billion in revenue in 2019, according to the Walt Disney Company's 2019 annual report. They have a lot of expenses, uh, but while I couldn't find 2019 profit numbers, in 2014, they did make $2.2 billion in profit just off theme parks. Walt designed his first park with one entrance gate. He reasoned that people became disoriented when they entered through multiple gates, smart, He also designed the park to have Main Street, just like a small town, just like his small town hometown, Marceline, Missouri, when they walked in, Main Street would be the hub leading to different areas. So you wouldn't have to walk through several different neighborhoods to get to the one you wanted. Also very smart. Uh, Despite Disney's films doing well, despite borrowing on his life insurance, he still didn't have enough money to get this park built and running. So he created a show called Disneyland for then fledgling ABC, uh, that TV network. Uh, In return, the network agrees to help finance the park. For its first five years of operation, Disneyland was owned by Disneyland Incorporated, which was jointly owned by Walt Disney Productions, Walt Disney, Western Publishing, and ABC. Uh, The TV show would run under various names every week all the way until 1984. First called Walt Disney's Disneyland, then Walt Disney Presents, then Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, then Wonderful World of Disney, then Disney's Wonderful World, uh, then Walt Disney. After a two-year hiatus, it returned weekly until 1990 then aired intermittently, then returning to ABC from 97 to 2008, then going back to intermittently, now back again on Disney+. Plus. Uh, and yeah, and that whole series of shows was started to fund Disneyland. July 16th, 1954, construction officially begins on Disneyland. Cost a whopping $17 million to complete, about $130 million in today's dollars. He went fucking big, bigger than anyone had ever gone on a theme park before. On July 17th, 1955, Disneyland opens via invitation only, or at least that's what was supposed to happen. I love this. Invitations were sent out to studio workers, construction workers, the press, officials from company sponsors, then some fans got a hold of them. Then forgeries were made and shit got crazy. (laughs) Over 30,000 people entered the park instead of just, you know, like around a thousand or so. People without tickets were literally climbing over fences into the park. Like it was mayhem. The park wasn't ready for the public. They ran out of food and drink almost immediately. Weird shit happened like a woman's high heel shoe got stuck in the still wet asphalt of Main Street. Uh, The Mark Twain steamboat damn near capsized because it had too many fucking passengers. Uh, Mickey and Minnie were beaten and left for dead behind the castle. Goofy was found floating face down in the river near the Jungle Cruise. Pluto killed by a sword on a boat in the underground lake at the bottom of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Maybe those last few things didn't happen, uh, but the rest did. It was a wild day. Uh, There were multiple other opening day problems, including tons of them airing live during the ABC Park opening dedication. Uh, Microphones were dropped off of rides. Speeches had to be restarted mid-speech because people didn't know when the cameras were on and when they were off. One of the anchors, a married Bob Cummings, no relation, uh, got caught kissing a dancer in the background. (laughs) Uh, The whole thing uh, actually uh, generated a fair amount of negative press, but in the end, didn't matter. On September 8th, 1955, just two months after it opened, Disneyland welcomed its one millionth visitor. Huge success. And a big reason for its success was Walt's amazing attention to detail, right? He learned through animation that people instinctively could tell when something was perfect or not. So he instructed his employees to to fucking pay attention to everything. Make sure, uh, you know, like all the Mickey Mouse dolls are facing exactly in the same direction on the shelf. Nothing's haphazard. Nothing looks sloppy. He makes sure all the trash cans at Disneyland, check this out, are planted exactly 25 steps from hot dog stands. He would walk it out because that's how many steps it would take Walt to normally eat a hot dog. He made sure everything was just so. It didn't become the Magic Kingdom by accident. Uh, About his massive achievement, he would later say, Disneyland will never be completed. It will continue to grow as long as there is imagination left in the world. How about that? Uh, October 3rd, 1955, Walt reintroduces the Mickey Mouse Club program. This time it was a TV show. The Mickey Mouse Club variety television show will air intermittently from 1955 all the way to 1996. Performers called Mouseketeers and famous Mouseketeers include Ryan Gosling, Justin Timberlake, Christina Aguilera, uh, Britney Spears. Justin Timberlake's old Mickey Mouse Club photos are hilarious to me. Future pop and R&B superstar dressed up as a cheesy ass Mickey Mouse cowboy. Uh, On October 5th, 1956, the Disneyland Hotel opens on a 60 acre lot next to Disneyland. On October 10th, 1957, Disney introduces a third television series called Zorro, Half Hour Adventure on the ABC network. Last for two seasons. Uh, the same year, Bambi is re-released in theaters. Earns $2 million. Walt is ecstatic. This redeems the movie's disappointing 1942 original release for him. And it will be re-released multiple times more in the coming years. And how cool is that? that you can just take a movie that you've already made, that's already been in the theaters, and throw it back in the theaters and make more money. On December 25th, 1957, Disney releases the live-action film Old Yeller. Spoiler alert, he dies. And if that just ruined it for you, be mad at yourself. You've had over 60 years to watch that tearjerker. You late to the old Yeller death party, son of a bitch. Uh, old Yeller was another success. Earned 6250000 at the box office, and that's just domestically, in 1957 dollars. June 14th, 1958, Disneyland's Columbia ship is christened. It's a full-scale replica of the first ship to carry the American flag around the world, and it costs 300 grand to build. I've been on it, and if you're hitting Disneyland for the first time, uh, skip it. Uh, it's still there in Frontierland, and it's still fucking boring. Uh, June of 1959, a real ride, the Matterhorn, a bobsled racing ride, opens at Disneyland as well as the Submarine Voyage, dumb unless you're with little kids, and the Disneyland monorail system, whatever, not a big train guy. Uh, motorboat cruise and a revamp of Autotopia is opened. Uh, I used to scare the shit out of my son, Kyler, on the Matterhorn. I would sit right behind him. He'd get nervous on the ride because <laughs> I'm a sick son of a bitch. And as we approached the top of the first drop, I would just start saying stuff like in his ear. I'd be like, don't worry, buddy. We should be fine. These rides are always extra safe the day after somebody dies. Dad, stop it! No, 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 dude, we're gonna be good. It's been it's been weeks since this thing flew off the rails and killed a bunch of people. Dad, stop! Uh, by that point, I usually be laughing my ass off. <laughs> I fucking I love that memory. Uh, and I said uh, all that not knowing that somebody actually did die in that ride. Uh, we'll get to that soon. Uh, 1960, Walt Disney production. Productions buys out all shares of Disneyland, a partnership which which eventually would lead to the Walt Disney Corporation's acquisition of ABC in the mid-90s. A little corporate shake and bake. Disney's going to go through a lot of these. Still going through a lot. On April 25th, 1961, Disney becomes debt-free again. Uh, Everything's paid for. Profit from movies and cartoons. Park visitors now all goes directly to Walt Disney Productions' corporate bank accounts. On April 5th, 1964, the New York's World Fair opens, featuring previews of four future Disney exhibits, including It's a Small World. In 1964 episode of Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, Walt previews the attractions being developed for the fair, featuring a new, innovative form of animation. He explains that Disneyland gave us a new art and a new type of artist, one that works with a slide rule and a blowtorch instead of a pencil and brush. Just as we learn how to make our animated cartoons talk, we have to find a way to make attraction figures talk, too we created a new field of animation. President Abraham Lincoln and other figures make his make the uh, audio animatronics debut. And animatronics makes me think of that creepy-ass Chuck E. Cheese band. right? the house band when I was a kid. Walt and his Imagineers, they didn't invent animatronics, but they did popularize them. Nobody really gave a shit about animatronics until, uh, you know, Disneyland. Uh, a ride that never made it to the park, Ford's Magic Skyway, allows guests to hop aboard a new Ford automobile, at the the big World Fair. Product placement, cross promo. Uh, From a trip at the beginning of time, which included some of the dinosaurs currently seen uh, from the Disneyland Railroad through the beginning of the Space Age, while listening to narration provided by Walt Disney himself. August 28th, 1964, Disney's Mary Poppins premieres at Grauman's Theater in in Hollywood, earns rave reviews, nominated for 13 Academy Awards, Uh, wins Best Actress, Best Film Editing, Best Musical Score, Best Song, Earned $31 million in North American theater rentals alone during its initial run against a budget of under six mil. Decent profit if you consider millions and millions of dollars of Scrooge McDuck money to be decent. September 14th, 1964, President Lyndon Jumbo Johnson, if you get that Jumbo reference, kudos to you, longtime sucker, uh, presents Walt with the Medal of Freedom at the White House, nation's highest honor for civilians. Walt was overjoyed for a few moments, and then he went right back to work. Wasn't satisfied with a world-renowned studio, a theme park, And a medal of freedom. He had more to do. He had to finally prove that his brother Roy had indeed killed their mother. Walt was more determined than ever to bring the evil, murderous Roy, accidental gas leak, my ass, Disney, to fucking justice. Since their mother slain in 1938, Walt had witnessed Roy grow steadily more evil. Every year, more children disappear near Roy Disney's office. Every year, he shows up to work with more blood on his hands, face, and suits. He's craving something Walt heard him refer to on multiple occasions as adrenochrome. In 1963, Roy redecorated his office with Baphomet paintings. He begins wearing a black robe to work. He's frequently heard yelling things like, Satan, give me power to rule! And I will raise the dead with children's blood! There will be a new world order! Always yelling this shit around the break room and the copy station. That's fucking crazy talk. Roy Roy Disney, to the best of my knowledge, has never killed anyone. His mother's death was an accident. Please, Disney lawyers understand that my rantings come primarily from mental instability. They're just the comedic ramblings of a maniac. I personally bear no ill will to Roy Disney, no matter what he may have done. <laughs> no matter how many unsolved murders he may have uh, never been, you know, brought to justice for. Okay. Uh, despite already accomplishing so much, the now 63-year-old Walt still looking for new ideas. During the early to mid-1960s, Walt develops plans for a ski resort in Mineral King, a glacial valley in California's Sierra Nevada mountains. He hires experts such as the renowned Olympic ski coach and ski area designer, Willie Schlafferlechter. It was going to be a huge ski resort theme park. Supposed to have 10 restaurants. Disney Imagineers designed a show with singing robotic bears, but construction in the mountains never happened. Environmentalists led by the Sierra Club worried about the environmental impact that millions of annual visitors would bring to the mountains. So they sued the heads of Sequoia National Park and Sequoia National Forest, arguing that the project improperly handed control of too much national forest to Disney that the highway through the national park was in fact illegal. And the Sierra Club was able to hold things up in court for a decade until Congress finally killed the project forever with the National Parks and Recreation Act in 1978. I mean, that place would have been crazy popular. Uh, the Robotic Bears would actually eventually become the Country Bear Jamboree attraction at Disneyland. The ski Resort was only one of Walt's ideas for a new theme park. In late 1965, Walt announced plans for Disney World would lie a few miles southwest of Orlando, near where his father, Elias, had once worked as a mailman in Cassimi uh, before before Fiddler sadness struck. And things uh things kind of crumbled. But uh, his, his son, his son would build something much bigger than a shitty orange grove farm, ranch, whatever the orange things are called. Uh, they buy a lot of land, so much. Actual theme park uh, built in Disney World will take up 1,100 acres, over 10 times as big as the entire Disneyland you know, a theme park. The entire resort sits on roughly 30,000 acres, 47 square miles of land For the Disney World Resort. Uh, Disney World was built to include the Magic Kingdom, a larger, more elaborate version of Disneyland, plus golf courses and resort hotels, you know, other theme parks. The centerpiece of Disney World was a concept that had been brewing in the back of Walt's mind for years. He wanted a real city built inside the park, a utopian community. He called it Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow or Epcot Center. And he said about it, Epcot will take its cue from the new ideas and new technologies that are now emerging from the creative centers of American industry. It will be a community of tomorrow that will never be completed, but will always be introducing and testing and demonstrating new materials and new systems. And Epcot will always be a showcase to the world of the ingenuity and imagination of American free enterprise. Fucking hell, Nimrod. Uh, His original vision was for a model community, which would have been home to 20,000 residents, you know, a test bed for city planning, city organization, and most importantly, Roy Disney would never be allowed to poison it with his evil, murderous JK. Uh, no, it was, have to, it, was, it was to be built in the shape of a circle with businesses and commercial areas at its center, with community building, schools, recreational complexes around it, while residential neighborhoods would line the perimeter. And had Walt lived long enough, Epcot may have indeed ended up being a utopian model city. But sadly, Walt's health took a hard turn for the worse in 1966. Walt had been a heavy smoker since he was a teenager in France in World War I. He smoked unfiltered cigarettes back in the days before anyone understood how bad that shit was for your lungs. And in November of 1966, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. He was treated with cobalt therapy. It would not work. December 5th, Walt turns 65 and he's too ill to celebrate. Then just 10 days later, on December 15th, 1966, Walt dies at 9.35 a.m. from acute circulatory collapse. Strangely, it has been widely reported that his last words were Kurt Russell, as in the actor, as in the man who was a 15-year-old child actor at the time. If this is true, no one, including Kurt Russell, knows what it meant. Probably almost certainly an urban legend. Or a young Kurt Russell uh, conspired to poison Walt's lungs with none other than, Roy, this wouldn't be his first murder at Disney. Uh, Disney Lawyers, please. I'm, I, I'll try and stop. I'll work on it. Uh, The publicity-shy Lillian ventured in the public arena after Walt's death in 1966. She wanted to fulfill his last dream, opening Walt Disney World. In October 1971, she attended the dedication of Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida, along with the company co-founder and Walt's loyal brother, Roy, the real Roy. Not the made-up evil version of someone who seemed to have been a good guy. Uh, I think Walt would have approved, Lillian said to Roy, who himself passed two months later on December 20th, 1971, at the age of 78. Eleven years later, she returned to Florida to attend the 1982 dedication of the Epcot Center, which was not opened as a city, but rather as a theme park dedicated to human achievement, technological innovation, and international culture. More of a permanent world fair than it is a traditional theme park. Uh, Lillian also supported Walt's passion for educating artists, donating $2.3 million to the Multidisciplinary California Institute of the Arts, CalArts, which opened in 1971. On May 12, 1987, Lily announced a gift of $50 million to build a new symphony hall designed by architect Frank Geary in Los Angeles. Longtime patron of the arts, this was her ultimate gift to the community and to the love of her life. The Walt Disney Concert Hall, home of the Los Angeles Philharmonic in a beautiful building, uh, debuted in October of 2003. And then Lillian suffered a stroke on December 15th, 1997. 31 years to the day after the death of her husband, and then she passed away the following day at ninety-eight. And with the end of Walt and Lillian's lives, let's hop out of this timeline and take a look at how they're remembered today and Walt's legacy. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So what a life, huh? Uh, a little more about Walt. As we mentioned in the timeline, Walt would be a or could be a, a demanding boss. Had he not been, Disney probably would have never become the empire it is today. According to Norman Floyd in his book, Animated Life, A Lifetime of Tips, Tricks, Techniques, and Stories from a Disney Legend, many of those that worked for Walt said that he had high expectations for his staff and praise was rare. Norman recall- recalled that when Disney said, that'll work, it was an indication of high praise. So, was Walt an asshole? No, it doesn't seem like it. It seemed like he was just a real, real hard worker and not a real emotional guy at work. According to his biographers, Walt also uh, wasn't, you know, who his fans thought he was. He was a shy, self-deprecating man who used a warm and open public persona. He knew his public persona was not the real him, once saying, I'm not Walt Disney. I do a lot of things Walt Disney would not do. Walt Disney does not smoke. I smoke. Walt Disney does not drink. I drink. I like this guy. Uh, Like with any famous figure, particularly one who lived before uh, our modern gold standard for politically correct behavior, accusations of anti-Semitism, racism, and sexism have been leveled at Walt." Do these accusations have any basis in fact? Let's address them. Uh, Starting with anti-Semitism, on November 10th, 1938, uh, when Nazis and their supporters torched synagogues, synagogues, vandalized Jewish homes and killed over 100 Jewish people on that day, Disney personally welcomed Nazi leader Lenny Reifenstahl to his studio. In Walt Disney, The Triumph of the American Imagination, Neil Gabler argues this does not prove Disney was racist. He wrote that at Disney Studios, of the Jews who worked there, it was hard to find any who thought Walt was an anti-Semite. Even Art Babbitt, uh, the hotshot Jewish animator who Walt fired for joining a union, a man who hated Walt by the end of his time working for Disney, denied that Walt was an anti-Semite. Accusations of anti-Semitism don't seem to come from Walt's personal behavior or beliefs. He didn't invite Lenny Reifenstahl to his home because he was Nazi. The accusations mostly come from business associations, uh, especially Disney's association with the very anti-Semitic Motion Picture Alliance, CEO founded after a particularly bitter labor dispute in 1941. Even if he wasn't personally anti-Semitic, Gabler allows that Disney, quote, willingly, even enthusiastically, embraced anti-Semites and cast his fate with them. Uh, Walt also has been accused of being racist. Uh, the accusations against Walt are concerned primarily with the use of racial stereotypes in Disney movies in the 1940s. Critics point to Dumbo's Black Crows, Fantasia's Black servants, or Black Servant Cent- Centauret, and Song of the South, uh, the entire movie a movie that the Disney company actually will no longer allow to be screened in public. Uh, Walt also accused of being sexist. According to Gabler, some of Walt's associates believe that Walt didn't like women in executive roles. Ward Kimball, one of Walt's head animators, once recalled he didn't trust women or cats, according to this guy, Ward Kimball. 1939, a woman named Mary Ford, who had applied for an apprenticeship at the studio, received a letter that said "Women uh, women do not do any of the creative work in connection with preparing the cartoons for the screen. So, was Walt possibly anti-Semitic, racist, and sexist? Yeah, yes, for sure. In some ways he was. But the, uh, to me, the real question is, was he more sexist, racist, anti-Semitic than the average white American male born in 1901? Not even close. No, he, he wasn't. It was truly a different time than it is now. And to judge Walt by the standards of an era he never lived in, just doesn't make any fucking sense. I'm gonna hold that opinion forever. You can't judge historical figures by contemporary uh, lifestyle, you know, like a uh, culture. It's just illogical. So sorry, Walt haters, if you're listening. Uh, he doesn't seem to have been a bad guy. If he, if he was alive now, I'm sure he would have a very different, much more evolved opinion about, uh, you know, uh, anything to do with racial relations, uh, male, female, you know, gender kind of roles, and, uh, and anything, you know, that could possibly be construed as anti-Semitic. I'm sure he would be very, very different as the times are very different. Now that we've covered the man behind the empire, let's talk a bit about what is arguably Walt's finest creation— the happiest place on earth a little bit more. Uh, today, Disneyland lies on 85 acres just for the theme park, just for that one. Uh, the Disneyland Resort now offers two theme parks, you know, Disneyland and then Disneyland California Adventure Park, which is another 72 acres. Each have their own unique attractions, shows, restaurants, uh, California Adventure in, uh, opened in 2001. And then there's all the hotels and everything, which rounds it out to over 500 acres. In 2018, the park had approximately 18.6 million visits making it the second most visited amusement park in the world behind only Disney World. Uh, according to a March 2005 Disney report, Disneyland alone provides 65,700 jobs. And in addition to Disney World, there's also Disneyland Paris, Hong Kong Disneyland, and the Tokyo Disney Resort. And they have four of their own cruise ships, which are basically floating theme parks. Uh, back to Disneyland, there's nine major lands in Disneyland. Main Street USA, Adventureland, New Orleans Square, Frontierland, Critter Country, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, Fantasyland, Mickey's Toontown, it's not boring, and Tomorrowland. Tiny bit of info about each each attraction. Main Street USA, patterned after again, Marceline, Missouri, where Walt grew up. It has a train station, town square, movie theater, city hall, firehouse, with a steam-powered pump engine, emporium, shops, arcades, double-decker bus, horse-drawn streetcar, jitneys, and more. And when my kids were uh, younger, uh, Kyler Monroe were both much younger, I witnessed both of them have massive meltdowns on Main Street of the happiest place on earth. Kyler uh, had a big meltdown because he didn't get that one extra piece of candy. He felt that he was due after a day of eating so much candy and going on so many fucking rides. And then I watched Monroe go full DEFCON 1 while dressed up as Tinkerbell because she didn't want to sit in the stroller. I told her that she could get out of if she just calmed down a little bit and waited until we got a little further into the park. Cue 20 minutes of full volume screaming. That That was a rough, rough one. Uh, there's Adventureland, designed to recreate the feel of an exotic tropical place in a far-off region of the world. Uh, New Orleans Square, my favorite, based on 19th century New Orleans. Opened on July 24th, 1966. Home, was, home to Pirates of the Caribbean, Haunted Mansion, and more. Also home to Club 33, a VIP club that has been the source of a lot of Illuminati conspiracies over the years. More on those conspiracies later. Uh, Frontierland recreates a setting of pioneer days along the American frontier. If the American frontier would have had uh, you know, popcorn stands and not very fast roller coasters, uh, Critter Country, opened in 1972 as Bear Country, was renamed in 1988. Today, the main draw of the area is Splash Mountain, a log flume journey, one of my favorite rides, inspired by animated segments of Disney's Academy Award-winning 1946 film, Song of the South. Uh, it is being redesigned now to not be associated with that movie anymore. Carmen Smith, Creative Development and Inclusive Strategies Executive at Walt Disney Imagineering, said in a 2020 press release, "...we continually evaluate opportunities to enhance and elevate experiences for our guests." It is important that our guests be able to see themselves and the experiences we create. Because we consider ourselves constant learners, we go to great lengths to research and engage cultural advisors and other experts to help guide us along the way. I'm incredibly proud to see this work continue forward with great leadership from across Disney. So good for them, right? You evolve, you change. Uh, you get smarter, hopefully. Uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, set within the Star Wars universe in the Black Spire Outpost Village on the remote frontier planet of Batuu, that land opened in 2019, replacing Big Thunder Ranch. Uh, front fan- I used to love Big Thunder Ranch. Oh, well. Uh, Fantasyland originally styled in a medieval European fairground fashion, but its 1983 refurbishment turned it into a Bavarian village. Fantasyland has the most fiber optics of the park, more than half in Peter Pan's Flight. I'd skip that ride. To me, it's just okay. Uh, Mickey's Toontown opened in 1993. It was partly inspired by the fictional Los Angeles suburb of Toontown in the movie uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I still think Jessica from that movie is the fucking hottest Disney-related character ever. Hail Lucifina. Lucifina's presence very strong in the animators who cooked up uh, a little vixen. Finally, during the 1995, or 1955 inauguration, Walt Disney dedicated Tomorrowland with writing these words, Tomorrow can be a wonderful age. Our scientists today are opening the doors of the space age to achievements that will benefit our children and generations to come. The Tomorrowland attractions have been designed to give you an opportunity to participate in adventures that are a living blueprint of our future. Yeah, inspiring. Disneyland producer Ward Kimball had rocked uh, had rocket scientists uh, Wernher von Braun, Willie Lay, and Heinz Haber serve as technical consultants during the original design of Tomorrowland. So that's the happiest place on earth. Also uh, a place home to a number of conspiracy theories. One conspiracy is that no one can die at Disney. I mean, they can, but Disney does uh, pr- tries to pretend that they don't. Lots of people seem to think that Disney will not allow anyone to officially be declared dead on their on their properties, requiring all unfortunate guests to be pronounced dead somewhere else. In the book Inside the Mouse, a writer claims that a medic said this was actually park policy. And while it might not be official po- policy, this conspiracy does seem to ring pretty true. According to Snopes, anyone who's been seriously injured or is rushed to the hospital, even if they seem like they're a lost cause or already dead, they're pronounced dead at the hospital outside the park. Despite this policy, people do die at Disneyland. 1964, a 15-year-old boy was killed trying to stand up while on the Matterhorn bobsled ride, the ride I teased my son Kyler about, I had no idea. He's the first death associated with Disneyland, but he didn't actually die at Disneyland. He was thrown from the ride, scary, died three days later, not at the park. 1973, an 18-year-old man did for sure die in the park for the first time. He drowned after he and his little brother, who was 10, hit on Tom Sawyer Island until after closing, then tried to swim across when they wanted to get back home. The older brother tried to carry his younger brother to shore, but didn't make it. He disappeared under the water about halfway across. And then the 10-year-old was rescued by a ride operator and the older uh, boy's body was not found until the next morning. So sad times for the happiest place on earth. I I used to think about hiding in the park. Uh, 1998, Luan uh, Fee Dawson, 33, was waiting to board the Columbia ship. As the boat docked at the rivers of America, it tore a metal cleat loose and that struck Dawson in the head. And she was declared brain dead two days later. 2003, Marcelo Torres, only 22, killed on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad when the car he was on separated from the rest of the train. How fucking terrifying. That's the kind of shit I think about when I'm on a roller coaster. As I'm going up, before the first drop, I'm like, God, man, I suck stuck with this thing, ripped off. Oh, man, we would all, we would, I would die. I would for sure die. And then I think, no, 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 it never happens. It never happens. But well, it does happen. It's not very often. Torres was the only fatality. Several other passengers uh, sustained injuries. Craziest death occurred in 1974 when a Disneyland employee was smushed in front of Disneyland customers by a rotating wall. Seriously. This is sad. Deborah Gale Stone, 18, was a greeter for the audience as they entered the America Sings attraction, which featured, you know, animatronic characters singing. She'd stand at the side of the stage, speak to guests with a microphone. Then the outer ring would spin around and show the audience the first group of robots. One night, Stone stood a bit closer to the rotating wall than normal. And this seemingly inconsequential decision cost her her life. She was crushed between the rotating wall and the stationary stage wall. Safety improvements were surprisingly, uh, or not surprisingly, made after Stone's horrifying death to prevent future employees from, uh, you know, not being fucking smashed to death in front of horrified guests mid-attraction. This is fucked up, but I wonder if some of those guests, just for a moment, thought that her getting smushed was just part of the tour. I mean, right? Because you don't know. You don't know what the tour is if you haven't been there before. What strange final moments for her to be literally dying, watching people smiling and laughing when you first started to get smushed. <laughs> what will Walt think of next? Wow, that was intense. A little gory in my opinion for the for the kids. Oh, oh, oh God, oh, oh God, that looks very real. Uh Now let's talk about a secret room. Club 33, located in New Orleans Square, Membership to this club is expensive and coveted uh, with hopefuls waiting on a list for years at a time. When you're finally picked, there's an initiation fee. Some places say 25 grand, some places say 50, and then an annual fee of 11 grand. And, and, and there is an initiation ritual also, and this is the most intense part, it involves being sodomized by the zombie not-quite-alive-but-not-quite-dead reanimated corpse of none other than Roy. Why won't I let this go, Disney? I'll try to stop it harder. Uh, No, but many people believe that Freemasons have had some secret meetings at Club 33 because, you know, 33 is the highest rank of a Mason. And to that, I say, who gives a shit? As I've said before in an episode long ago, have you seen a Freemason lodge recently? How does anyone still think they're controlling anything? Really, these frequently dilapidated old lodges often nestled into crumbling buildings full of a handful of bored geriatric men in many small towns and cities, and then regular old just business networkers and other locations, do, do they really seem... Like they're, like, like they're ushering in a new world order. Get out of here. they're secret clubhouses, not a, not a powerful secret society. And Walt built Club 33 because he liked a secret clubhouse. As do I. Uh, some think the name refers to 33 uh, important patrons that Disneyland had when the club was being built and opened. Uh, I've seen pictures of the inside of Club 33 and a variety of websites. And I got to say, kind of bummed. Uh, it seems super overpriced for a place that you have to pay 25 to 50 grand to join. There's a bar and there's a restaurant that not everybody else can get into, and, and that's kind of it. Uh, it's exclusive. Membership is capped to just a few hundred members, so, you know, it's never going to be crowded, but it's, but it's just definitely not, holy shit, massages and caviar VIP, kind of decadent. Now let's talk about something juicier than a boring Disney clubhouse where no one ever gets sacrificed to Satan and where Minnie Mouse never even touches your wiener one time. Did Walt Disney have his body or head uh, cryogenically frozen? Is his frozen head hidden under the Pirates of the Caribbean ride? Yes. This one, crazy and true. In 1963, three years before his death, Walt authorized a secret cryogenic laboratory to be built beneath Disneyland called Project Eternal Magic. While the strange lab, no one who has ever been cryogenically frozen has been successfully reanimated that we know of, uh, was officially shut down in 1981, there are rumors that some of the frozen stasis pods are still down there. Uh, There's another rumor that Walt's brother Roy, also frozen, and then suddenly in the year 2000, his frozen body vanished, Or, reanimated, is Roy out there somewhere? Somehow still alive? Is he still killing moms? (laughs) Did you think I was finally done beating that joke into the ground? Did you believe any of this secret lab nonsense? No, Walt was never frozen. Uh, That urban legend likely dates back to an interview in 1972 by Bob Nelson, uh, president of the Cryonics Society of California. Uh, He said that Disney wanted to be frozen, but he also stressed that he was not frozen. Uh, there's also the rumor that Walt's body is buried under sleeping beauty's castle. That's not true either. He was cremated two days after his death. Uh, let's address a few more Disney rumors. Has anyone been scared to death at Disneyland? Scared to death. Sounds familiar. Uh, no one has ever been scared to death at Disneyland. The haunted mansion opened in 1969. Some say there was an earlier version of the ride and that it was so terrifying that a man invited to preview it suffered a heart attack and died mid ride. And then Disney ordered the ride to be toned down to prevent other people from being frightened to death. no, There's no evidence to support that anyone died in the Haunted Mansion. An 89-year-old woman did once break her hip getting off a doom buggy. And of course she did. She was 89. Sometimes 89-year-olds break hips watching TV or fucking eating pudding. Uh, Another rumor is that Disneyland is full of dead bodies. Seriously, the rumor is that the animatronics team who built the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction were not pleased with how realistic the robot pirates looked initially. So they hired some friends at UCLA Medical Center and got some real skeletons and cadavers from the anatomy department. And then real dead bodies were used as set deck for a Disney ride. That's fucking, no, that's not true. <laughs> There's no substance to that at all. Also a crazy rumor that Discovery Island, originally called Treasure Island, a Disney World island in Bay Lake, open from 1974 to 1999, was shut down so the government could use it as a death camp. Uh-huh, that makes sense. Sure, just put, you know, why, why put a death camp in the middle of nowhere and make it hard to find when you can put it right next to Disney World? One of the most tourist-traveled areas in the entire fucking country. That's, it's also nonsense. Uh, there's also some mind-control conspiracies floating around about Disney. Some conspiracy theories accuse, accuse Disneyland of controlling your mind through your nose, and that's sort of true. Disneyland smells great, not by accident, by design. The, the Smellitizer, not kidding, is a clever device invented by Imagineer Bob McCarthy to manifest a variety of smells throughout the park. The smells are meant to correlate with what you're experiencing. For example, you're going to smell cookies on Main Street. Candy and vanilla at Candy Palace. If you visit during certain seasons, you may smell uh, what makes you nostalgic for them, like peppermint during Christmas, pumpkin spice during autumn. The Haunted Mansion, designed to smell musty. Pretty amazing. Are we being manipulated by these smells? Yeah, of course. Manipulation is part of marketing, and no one is better at it than Disney. They know how to sell joy like no one else. Another myth is a, uh, another true one, a weird one. <laughs> This is kind of obscure but the human beings inside the roving Disney characters at the theme park used to have to share underwear. <laughs> this is a this is a weird little detail because their own undies could potentially bunch up, cause problems, cause some chafing as they're doing their characters and and the park was too cheap to buy cast members individual underwear for many years. Cast members would turn in their dirty undies at the end of the shift. Supposedly, they were supposed to be properly washed. However, after numerous complaints from cast members about dirty underwear, scabies, and even pubic lice, the Teamsters Union negotiated in 2001 for cast members to each have their own set of Disney-approved underwear that they themselves could launder. (laughs) So gross. So weird. And also not surprised. I have a ton of respect for what Walt did and what he built. And for how Disney continues to expand as a company. Uh, but Walt was notoriously cheap with his employees. That's why they went on strike against him. And Disney is a company still notoriously cheap with its employees. Writer friends I've had in LA, always have hated pitching shows to Disney because they knew if they sold it to Disney, they weren't going to get paid what they would get paid at almost any other studio. Those characters at Disneyland, the ones wearing suits, hot suits, the ones you, have to, have to, you used to have to share underwear, they have to wave, be cheerful all fucking day, Around a shitstorm of bratty Kids either going into or crashing down from sugar highs, those characters get paid an average of 13 bucks an hour, a dollar more than California's minimum wage. Disney has built their empire partly on awesome products and innovation and savvy marketing, also partly on keeping their payroll pretty low. Uh, and there's other conspiracy theories. Most of them are boring. Uh does Disney choose the colors the park has been painted to direct uh has been painted in to direct you where to look, to maximize how much shit you buy? Yeah. They put a lot of thought into everything. That's the real magic of Disneyland, attention to detail. Uh, is there a no-fly zone above Disneyland? Yes, but not to hide secrets. It's to add to the park experience. They bring in so much tax money for Southern California, they can demand a no-fly zone above their theme park. Uh, and again, it's just attention to detail. Attentions to details, many places would never even think about. And that's why you know they've, they've become the world's most recognizable, one of the world's most recognizable and powerful brands. Let's talk about how big and powerful Disney is as a company to close things out. This stuff fascinates me. Since it was founded in 1923, the Walt Disney Company has grown into a mega megabillion uh, dollar company comprised of multiple other companies it's bought over the years. Hundreds of individual companies now are under the umbrella of the Walt Disney Company. Few major companies, Disney owns a large portion of our media giants like Hulu, Disney Plus, ABC. They own 80% of ESPN. They own Touchstone Pictures, Marvel, Lucasfilm, 50% of A&E. They own 50% of the History Channel, 50% of Lifetime, Pixar, Hollywood Records, 10% of Vice Media, right? There's Disney television channels, Disney stores and malls across the world, Disney radio stations, Disney parks, Disney cruise line, uh, vacation-related properties. The Disney theme park uh, empire has 46 resort hotels in four countries with more than 140,000 cast members keeping the parks running. Walt Disney World in Orlando alone, the largest single site employer in the United States with a $1.6 billion payroll. There are literally dozens of other miscellaneous property companies uh, owned by Disney going back to the days when Walt had to hide his investments through other companies in order to buy land for Walt Disney World. There's all the characters and brands that fall somewhere under the Disney business umbrella, Star Wars, The Muppets, The Marvel Cinematic Universe, Disney Princesses, The Chronicles of Narnia franchise, The Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, Pixar films, which includes Toy Story, The Incredibles, and Cars, The Winnie the Pooh franchise, Indiana Jones (laughs) franchise, Number of popular shows in ABC like Grey's Anatomy. Disney also bought 21st Century Fox for $71 billion in 2019. So now they own brands like The Simpsons, The X-Men, Fantastic Four, Deadpool, Aliens, Predator, Die Hard, Avatar, Planet of the Apes, Home Alone, Kingsman, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, The X-Files, 24, The Family Guy, just to name a few. With so many recognizable characters, Disney makes a fuck ton of merchandising money. In 2014, consumer products generated revenue and operating income of nearly $4 billion and $1.4 billion. There is a shit ton uh, of Disney-related crap in landfills all over Earth. Disney's first film to exceed $1 billion in global box office receipts was Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. Uh, Did that in 2006. Since then, several Disney films have eclipsed the 10-figure mark, including 2010's Alice in Wonderland, over a billion Toy Story 3 over a billion, 2011's Pirates of the Caribbean uh, of Stranger Tides over a billion, 2012's Marvel's The Avengers uh, over one and a half billion, uh, 2013's Iron Man 3 1.2 billion, Frozen 1.2 billion. Many of those billion plus films stem from Disney's decisions to acquire Pixar for 7.4 billion in 2006 and Marvel for 4 billion in 2009. And those investments are paying off. Uh, most recently things really took off with Avengers Endgame, which took in almost three fucking billion dollars in 2019. The highest grossing film of all time at the box office, 2.8 billion. Six of the top 10 highest grossing films are movies owned by Disney. There are now 25 films Disney has made with over a billion dollars in box office revenue. That's insane. Overall, the company's worth somewhere between 61 billion and 131, and 130 billion, uh, placing it seventh in the list of the 10 most valuable brands in the world, according to Forbes in 2020. They find themselves behind the likes of Coca-Cola, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and Apple, and ahead of everyone else in the world. And it all started with the drawings and visions of one man, Walt Disney. Yes, many helped him along the way. People like, you know, older brother Roy, natural born killer Disney, uh, boob eye twerk. But seriously, a lot of talented people help Walt. But it was Walt's core ideas, his vision, his demanding ways, his tenacity to not accept defeat, his passion, his drive that took what could have been a life of cranking out some pretty good cartoons, maybe winning a few awards, maybe making a few good movies and enjoying a big home in the Hollywood Hills. He could have been one of those guys, could have stopped there, but he kept pushing. And he built a company that could still yet become the most powerful corporation in the world. Disney still innovating, still pushing, evolving long after Walt's death. Disney's new new live ad, uh, action adaptation of 1998's animated Mulan is going to debut on Disney Plus on September 4th. And this is not a paid ad. I mean, get out of here. I don't see Disney buying ads on this show unless fucking no one from Disney ever hears about it, especially after the crazy shit I said about Roy this week. Uh, but Disney is releasing Mulan on Disney Plus for $29.99 on top of the $6.99 per month Disney Plus fee. Since theaters are still closed down around the world, Disney is gambling on home viewing to debut a film that costs roughly $200 million to make. And industry insiders are saying that if this gamble works, it's going to change the film industry forever. It's going to revolutionize uh, things once again. It could spell doom for movie theaters. If big budget blockbusters can be profitable via a home release, obviously theater chains like AMC and Regal are going to lose a lot of leverage when it comes to making deals to screen films in the future, and they're going to lose a ton of income. Disney could put the nail in the coffin, the final nail for movie theaters. They could be a, a huge game changer again. And I, And it all started, again, with the mouse. As a film producer, Walt Disney holds the record for most Academy Awards earned by an individual still, won 22 Oscars from 59 nominations, presented with two Golden Globe Special Achievement Awards and an Emmy Award, among many other honors, and all started with his, uh, you know, drawing some shit on a train, mad about getting screwed on a previous animation deal coming back to California from New York. Walt was by no means perfect, but what a life he led. He contributed a lot to the betterment of mankind. Some of my best family memories involve Disney, you think about how certain uh, you know brands affect your life. I still remember Kyler Monroe watching Little Einsteins on Playhouse Disney when they were toddlers. After my divorce, when the kids were flying back and forth to see me in LA from Spokane, one of the first things I did was buy annual Disneyland passes. As the day and in, in the days we went, you know, despite the meltdowns, despite the long waits and lines, those trips to Anaheim were fucking magical. I wish I could step through some multiverse wall and still be able to lift Kyler above my head or hold Monroe and walk around the park for hours on end. Wish I could watch them light up when I got some, I got some toys on the way out. Uh, when things got serious with Lindsay, I went to Disneyland with her and the kids, and we had someone take our pictures. We sat on a bench just outside the Matterhorn ride, and it's one of my favorite pictures ever. Such a magical, special moment, Trapped in Time. Uh, another one of my favorite pictures from, from the Tarzan treehouse. Kyler missing most of his front teeth. Monroe so in love with Lindsay. Ice cream on their faces. Big smiles on everyone's faces. Without Disneyland, without Walt, I don't have those memories. I don't get to remember carrying Kyler Monroe from my shitty beat-up Elantra with a mangled front-right panel and a passenger window that didn't roll all the way back up or down. Uh, I got stuck all the time. I had back windows full of Disney stickers because I let the kids throw them all around that beater. I don't get to remember carrying those kids from the car laying them down in their bunk beds out cold. You know, they'd OD'd on fun and treats, crashed as happy as a kid can crash. Kyler with a lightsaber in his hand, Monroe dressed up like Tinkerbell. So thank you, Walt. Is your Disney empire perfect today? Of course not. No company ever is, but thank you. Thanks for the memories. Thanks for not giving up when you had your Oswald the lucky rabbit idea stolen from you. I love how much Mickey looks like Oswald, by the way. Uh, thanks for not giving up when a war and a strike left you millions in debt. Thanks for continuing to work long hours on the next feature film when the last few flopped. You may not have lived long enough to build a new kind of utopian city, but you did live long enough to create a lot more joy for the entire world. If the rest of us tried to follow your example, in that regard, how much more magic? How much you know? Could we put out into the world? How much more magical could our world become? Something cool to think about. Uh, something cool to strive for. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one: Walt was a prolific entertainer. Starting out as the son of a man who couldn't get any of his businesses to work, Walt created one of the biggest media empires on earth. From Disneyland to movies to theme parks to a futuristic village that ended up being another theme park, Walt created it all. Estimated that if he were alive today, his personal net worth would be around forty billion. Number two, Walt did help make the Red Scare during the fifties worse by being a strident anti-communist and FBI informant, and buddies with several key law enforcement officers. Some people will see this as a stain on his life record, but fuck communism. Bojangles loves Walt Disney more because of this than anything else. Number three, while critics called his first full-length cartoon Disney's folly, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs would reinvent the film industry, eventually tackle. Uh, you know, or, and eventually, you know, become one of the highest-grossing films of all time, and the first animated feature film to be a giant theatrical hit. Walt put his future on the line, borrowing most of the 1.5 million that he used to make the film, and it paid off. Snow White grossed over 66 million, over a billion in today's money, during this 1937 theatrical run. Before reaching 185 million with the help of re-releases over the following decades, still the tenth highest-grossing film of all time. Number four. The company Walt would create with his brother in 1923 would eventually go on to be one of the top 10 most valuable companies on earth. And number five, new info, was Walt Disney a naughty boy sneaking sexual imagery into his family-friendly cartoons? Let's uh, talk about a few more rumors. A lot of rumors in this vein, but since Walt himself is a pretty conservative guy, most of it doesn't check out. But there have been quite a few naughty images found, or at least claimed to be found in Disney pictures over the years. Let's throw our minds in the gutter. It's a spin reality for, for a minute. You may have heard of the scene in the animated Lion King where as he lays down with a thud, Simba kicks up a cloud of dust which appears to spell out sex. It's there, but was it intentional? Yes, but asterisk. One of the film's animators, Tom Sido, has uh, confirmed that yes, there was a word intentionally spelled out in the dust, but not sex. It's SFX, an in-joke for the film's art and special effects department. The SFX department. So not as dirty as you might think. Uh, also a scene in Little Mermaid where one of the characters gets a boner or appears to. Happens when the bishop stands before the soon-to-be betrothed and says "Dearly beloved," and then his groin region appears to bulge and inflate. Again, Tom Sito has an explanation. Sito says the bulge is actually one of the bishop's knees. But this didn't stop one viewer for attempting to sue Disney over the image not being suitable for use and viewing by young children. My God, trying to sue for that? Fuck whoever did that. Oh my heck! What will happen to my children if they see a closed boner? What can a closed boner do for the children? Uh, Disney was actually forced to remove the offending erection from the film. Unreal. Uh, another one in the, is, is in the little mermaid poster art. The art depicts the main characters against the backdrop of Atlantica where a few of the castle spires look a lot like a couple of dicks. Was this uh, an innocent accident? Not according to longstanding rumor, which has suggested that a ticked off Disney animator inserted, uh, penises <laughs> after being sacked. And it turned out it's just a rumor. Not only was the poster artist not fired, this dude claiming this was never even employed by Disney. Uh, The artist in question has since admitted that the artwork was the result of him rushing uh, to complete it over an all-night design session, meaning any penises in the poster are Freudian slips at best. And I love this next one, which includes Jessica Rabbit. So hot. Since the release of Who Framed Roger Rabbit in 1988, Jessica Rabbit has become one of the most iconic symbols of female sexuality in real life and in the world of animation, and at one point in the film, Jessica crashes out of the cab. She's been riding with Eddie Valiant. As she's thrown from the car, Jessica's legs open. It's a basic instinct moment in a film full of risque humor, atypical even for those uh, filth merchants. Filth merchants, excuse me, over at the Disney Animation House. Uh, there are literally dozens of little things in so many Disney movies that people with their minds in the gutters have found uh, that they thought were sexual, but they've uh, pretty much all been explained away as being pretty innocent. Even in that uh, top moment, you don't actually see anything you know, with Jessica. Uh, except for that one Sharon Disney porno, the happiest puss on earth. Everything else has been, you know, pretty, pretty innocent. Did you know that Roy Disney produced that movie? Jk. <laughs> I'm done now. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Disney has been sucked. Hope you like it. Uh, apologies to Roy Disney's relatives. After Walt's death in 1996, Roy did postpone his retirement to oversee construction of what was then known as Disney World. He renamed Walt Disney World as a tribute to his brother, and apparently he was a, he was a good dude. I uh, hope you had fun with the subject, really unlike any other subject we've had so far. Uh, I had fun with it. Nice change of pace. Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Script Keeper, Zach Flannery, Bit Elixir, we got Art Warlock, Logan. we got the Bad Magic Baroness, Kate Keith, running badmagicmerch.com and the socials. And, uh, and and Sophie Evans, thanks for, uh, she is now a full-time contributor. She's helped off and on for quite a while. Uh, thanks to Sophie. Thanks to all of you who joined the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. Over 20,000 members who continue to make time suck more than a podcast. Uh, hail Nimrod to all of you. Thank you, Liz Hernandez and the all seen eyes running the Cult of the Curious Facebook page. Thanks to the wonderful weir- weirdos having fun on, on Discord. Congrats. To Hunter Covington, a.k.a. KMO Boy 78 for winning round one of the trivia and getting some sweet prizes mailed his way, including a, a cowboy pigeon trophy. Little what's new, cat, Little cowboy pigeon trophy, space lizard. You get that. Uh, he crushed it with 5,863 total points over four weeks' worth of trivia. Round two has already started. Good luck to all of you playing. Uh, next week on Time Suck, we examine what many claim to be the strangest place on Earth, Skinwalker Ranch. That's right, gonna get cryptid. gonna get UFO-y, gonna get monster-y. This suck will focus on an orgy of X-Files oddities that allegedly occurred over the course of 50 years on a 512-acre ranch in the middle of rural Utah. Interesting parallel, almost the exact same size as a Disneyland resort. X-Files owned by Disney. Is Disney behind, is fucking Roy behind this? Uh, The story somehow has all of the following. Extraterrestrials, poltergeists, werewolves, evil witches, UFOs, Sasquatches, dinosaur ghosts, a billionaire rocket scientist, and of course, skinwalkers. You'll have to join us next week to see if I made any of that up. Hint, I didn't. Uh, join uh, just the UFO aspects of this topic include all the major levels of ufology from crop circles to cattle mutilations to abduction stories and more. There are so many reports of lights in the sky that the area is often referred to as UFO Alley. A local filmmaker once told a Utah news reporter that you can't throw a rock in Southern Utah without hitting somebody who's been abducted. Precisely the type of story we'd like to suck on. This topic raises so many questions. Is the land cursed? Is it a portal to another dimension? Does Bigfoot travel into space with werewolves? (laughs) Most importantly, can crystals protect us from aforementioned space werewolves? Maybe. Nah, probably not. Uh, We'll try and find answers to these questions, plus detail the many paranormal claims of Skinwalker Ranch next week on Time Suck. And right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. Uh, Sweet space lizard Larry Sharp. As an acronym correction for me. It's a lesson I think I learned in a previous update and then clearly forgot because I, I need to learn it again. Uh, Larry writes, Dan, Reverend COVID. <laughs> Reverend COVID. That's pretty good. And fucking new guy. Uh, <laughs> when listening to all things FBI this past week, Dan mentioned about a thousand times that the number of acronyms in the government are ridiculous. Not true. What Dan doesn't know is that the FBI and the BAU and the BSU are not acronyms. Webster says, acronym a word such as NATO, radar, or laser, formed from the initial letter or letters of each of the successive parts or major parts of a compound term. Note that doesn't mean that all words formed by initials like FBI are not acronyms. The resulting word created by the initials has to be said as a word, like NATO, not as individual letters like FBI. I found this out on one of my favorite shows since I'm innately cynical, Penn & Teller's Bullshit, and in their episode called The Right Not to be Offended Censored, they point out this in their own classically acerbic way. Uh, when you say FBI, what you got there is in initialism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Praise Nimrod and keep on pink-socking. Space Lizard Larry Sharp. God, Larry, thank you for, thank you for the pink-sock reference. I forgot about that. Not happy to remember it. Uh, yes, initialism, DVD, ATM, BRB, FBI, different than acronyms like ASAP, AWOL, IMAX. Said as words, not as individual letters. Appreciate the reminder. Hail Nimrod to you. Uh, top Shelf Sack Shelby caught another BSU blunder. She writes, greetings and salutations, Suck Master Supreme. I was just listening to the BSU suck and had to rewind once or twice. You see, I'm in the Air Force and my husband is in the Army. We have a long-standing joke going where people always refer to the military as a whole as the Army. Many people from back home ask me how the Army is on a pretty regular basis. I don't really mind. I don't often correct them, but the Army and the Air Force truly couldn't be more different. Dan, I thought you were special. I thought you understood. Yet in the episode, you said John Douglas would also join the army spending four years in the Air Force. Why, Dan? In all honesty, my husband and I got a good laugh out of it. No actual offense was taken. I just felt the need to call you out for it. In the event that you read this on the show, could you give a shout out to my husband, Tyler? Can't wait to see you live whenever the San Antonio show ends up being Time Sucker and U.S. Airman, not soldier, Shelby. Shelby, forgive me. Yes, shout out to Tyler. Thank you both for your service. Uh, I blame, you know who I blame? If I'm not going to blame myself, I'm going to blame my daughter Monroe for that mistake. Hear me out. I ran home for lunch before recording that episode and I was going to eat something reasonable, but she had the balls to make sweet ass chocolate waffles, giant ones. And she offered me one and yeah, sure. I could have said no, but come on. It's a chocolate waffle, chocolate chips in there. So I I ate it. And then I fought a food coma for the entire recording. Damn you, chocolate waffle. Uh, And of course I don't blame the wall for Monroe. I I, should have caught that. Yeah. Thanks for the reminder, Shelby. Now a super cool FBI BSU update coming in from an anonymous sucker who writes, insert witty greeting here. Super anonymous update here. This email will explode after reading. Nice. Space lizard creeper and proud spouse to an FBI special agent in training here. Just finished the BSU suck and wanted to give you my limited insight into the special agent process. And first wanted to state that the FBI is very clear during the long application process that the job is not like what you see on TV. And if you think that you probably should not apply. The application process to become a special agent is very lengthy and rigorous. Took my husband one and a half years from application to class date. Also, a profiler is not an official job title, but rather a task performed by this department. Below is listed uh, in the fact in the FAQ section on the special agent job information, which I find hilarious that they needed to clarify. <laughs> and it says the FBI does not have a job called profiler. Supervisory special agents assigned to the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. NCAVC, at Quantico, Virginia, perform the task commonly associated with profiling. Despite some popular depictions, these FBI special agents do not get vibes or experience psychic flashes while walking around f- fresh crime scenes. In reality, is it, an ex- it is an exciting world of investigation and research, a world of inductive and deductive reasoning, crime-solving experience, and knowledge of criminal behavior facts and statistical probabilities. On the chance this gets read in the suck, I was wondering if you could give a shout out to my amazing husband who's going through the academy in such a weird time, may not be able to see any friends or family until he graduates. I'm so proud for you following your dreams, hang in there and keep on sucking. Not sorry for the email length. (laughs) That's become a thing now. Uh, It reminds me of, I want to say too, um, also, I got to say, I love all the three out of five uh, uh, references and reviews just across anything I've done online now. It feels like the bulk, the last few months of every review is uh, love it. Wouldn't change a thing. It's three out of five stars. Yeah, uh, it does crack me up. And then for obvious reasons, no name. Well, congrats, anonymous husband of anonymous sucker. Uh, you're almost there. You're almost Clarice Starling. Soon you'll be going head to head in a battle of wits against Hannibal Lecter. Soon you'll be trying to track down Roy Disney. No, uh, seriously though. Good for you. Over the Sunday, I'm referencing, uh, you helping, uh, catch some serial killer. And thanks to you, FBI dude's partner for the extra info. That was awesome. Uh, Now meet Zach Supreme. Zach Raymond gets Cummins-Lod. Love these. Laughed so hard when I read this the first time. Zach writes, dear Suckmaster Mushmouth, uh, you finally got me, you rat bastard. Today I was listening to the BSU Suck in my work truck while I was eating lunch. The maintenance guy for the property I'm working at came up to the truck to ask a question. So I paused the Suck, rolled my windows down, chatted for a few minutes. He leaves. I hit play, continue eating my lunch. About five minutes in, you start singing your Albert Fish song. You know the one. Well, you know it's the best when the poop hits your chest. That's how I come. I shoot my seed when your ass starts to bleed. That's how I come. As you hit that triumphant final, that's how I come. And I'm laughing my ass off. Out of the corner of my eye, I see a car with three grandmas in it. (laughs) About to go eat lunch. Just staring at me with their mouths wide open. That's right. My dumbass forgot to roll my damn window back up. Horrified, I just turned the volume down, rolled my window up, and casually looked the other direction. I can only imagine the lunch conversation those poor ladies had. Hope this put a smile under your mustache. Keep on sucking, good sir, your faithful meat sack, Zach. Zach, I love it. And what if, think about this, what if when you left, right, one of those ladies said, weird, that's how I come too. And then they had a good old peanut butter and hot apple cider hoedown. Uh, Seriously though, thanks for sharing. Keep on sucking. Uh, Love these uh, type messages. Uh, now for an important reminder from space wizard Matt Pittman, not to take your friends or your life for granted. Enjoy the days you've got suckers. Matt writes, dear suck master, space lizard, Matt here today started out shitty. I left work early to go to urgent care because I felt strep throat coming on. As I'm sitting waiting for my name to get called, my phone rings. It's my friend who I happen to work with. Just as I'm feeling terrible thinking about how much my life sucks. She tells me that our coworker, another one of my good friends got on an accident last night and passed away. I've been in a haze ever since. I had just talked to her the day before about how much she was working. She was volunteering for overtime and weekend shifts on top of running her own house, keeping businesses, uh, keeping business on the side. I asked her why she put herself through the ringer like that. Why, don't, why doesn't she take some time to relax? And she said it was so she uh, ha- would have something to leave behind for her son. She came to the United States 10 years ago from Puerto Rico, had worked nonstop since she got here to make a better life for her family. I say all of this to remind myself and all the other time suckers out there to be thankful for the people you love and care about around you because you never know when you'll talk to them for the last time. Just wanted to get this off my chest, hopefully show people what's really important in life. Hail Nimrod. Hail Nimrod to you, Matt. Sorry about your friend. Thank you for that very important reminder. Tomorrow is guaranteed to no one. So carpe diem while you can. Surround yourself with people you enjoy and love as often as you can. Now last up, then with a little more comedy. A uh, Polish monster, Doug Lewandowski, has somehow emailed in a message. Clearly, a non-Polish person helped him write it, since we know that Poles have not evolved far enough to learn how to type. They don't have fine motor skills; uh, they can smash keys, but they can't hit them gently one at a time. Anyway, Doug has some fun to share with us. He writes, "Sir, sucks a lot. My wife saw and I saw you in Sacramento before the world ended, and you were amazing. Uh, thank you. I am the one who gave you my squadron's coin after the show. Yes, thank you. Uh, that leads me to my next point. You son of a bitch." <laughs> All that Yoko Ono music haunts me from my time at survival, evasion, resistance, and escape school. I fly for the Air Force, and in the prison camp phase of our training at the school, they will play Yoko Ono's (laughs) terrible shit for hours on repeat. It wears on you. It aids in sleep deprivation. I just want to say thanks for making me flashback to wanting to smash my head into my cell door while I was driving to work today. However, I forgive you because everything you touch is awesome. Obligatory. Sorry for the long email from Mark. Keep on sucking. Your loyal spaces are Doug. Doug, thank you for that message. I assume you're being serious, and I find that fucking hilarious that they play Yoko Ono to literally torture people with. I believe it. Her vocal solos, they sound like cats being beaten to death with other cats. Uh, Thanks for your service. Sorry about your last name. And keep on sucking. And thanks, everyone, for the updates. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another suck, and thanks for the ratings and reviews, everyone. Much appreciated. You keep time suck up, and various charts uh, it continues to spread the suck, and I feel very lucky. Uh, don't forget about the sucks giving virtual gathering tickets on sale now at badmagicmerch.com. Uh, don't pull a Roy this week and kill your mom, anyone. It's okay, ha, and keep on sucking. Oh boy. Elias' real sadness towards the end of his life, of course, came from outliving his wife and living with the knowledge that she was murdered by his son Roy. And, of course, Disney Legal Team, if you're listening, J.K. J.K. as fuck.